This is Commission President Ryan Calkins convening the regular meeting of October 11th, 2022. The time is 1223. We're meeting in person today at the Port of Seattle headquarters building in the Pier 69 Commission chambers and virtually through Microsoft Teams. Clerk Hart, please call the roll of all commissioners in attendance. Thank you. Beginning with um, Commissioner Fellman. Present. Thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa. Present. Thank Pre you. Commissioner Mohammed. Present. Thank you. Commissioner Cho, it's my understanding he will not be joining us this afternoon. Commissioner Calkins. I'm here as well. Thank you. We do have a quorum established here today, sir. Due to the continued virtual component of participation for our meetings, we have staff, external presenters, and members of the public who may be participating on their personal devices or from their phones today. We've made arrangements to accommodate this virtual format. Later, we'll take public comment on items related to the conduct of the port from people who are participating by teams, as well as from those in person who have signed up to speak. For anyone participating on Microsoft Teams, please mute your speakers when not actively speaking or presenting. Please keep your cameras off unless you are a member of the commission or executive director participating virtually, or you are a member of staff in a, <coughs> excuse me, in a presentation and are actively addressing the commission. Members of the public addressing the commission may turn on their cameras when their name is called to speak. For anyone at the dais here today, please turn off the speakers on any computers and silence your devices. When you're recognized to speak, you will press the button for your microphone to be audible and will press it again to silence it when not actively speaking. All of the items noted here will ensure a smoother meeting. Thank you. All votes today will be taken by the roll call method since there is a virtual component to the meeting, so it is clear for anyone participating virtually how votes are cast. Commissioners will say aye or nay when their name is called. To be equitable, I will ask that all commissioners wait to be recognized before speaking. We are meeting on the ancestral lands and waters of the Coast Salish people, with whom we share a commitment to steward these natural resources for future generations. This meeting is being digitally recorded and may be viewed or heard at any time on the port's website and may be rebroadcast by King County Television. Please stand or join us for the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. The first item of business today is approval of the agenda. I've been advised that Commissioner Hasegawa would like to pull agenda item 8C for separate discussion. Are there any other items to be pulled from the consent agenda or motions to rearrange the orders of the day? Okay, commissioners, the question is now on approval of the agenda. Is there a motion to approve the agenda? I move we approve the agenda as proposed. So seconded. The motion has been made and seconded. Is there any objection to approval of the agenda as amended? Hearing none, the agenda is approved as amended. Next on our agenda is the Executive Director's Report. Executive Director Metric, take it away. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Actually, it's hard to believe it's October, but here it is. October is a notable month for many reasons. It is the beginning of the fourth quarter, which means the height of our business planning and budget process, which we'll hear more about uh, uh, this afternoon, but it also marks a period where we recognize a number of significant uh, events. Uh, we recognize Indigenous Peoples Day, Filipino American History Month, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Yom Kippur, and then today National Coming Out Day. 
As the port works to advance our goal of becoming a model for equity, diversity, and inclusion, I'd like to emphasize our observance of these days of recognition and months of recognition. The port acknowledges the harmful impacts of colonization on Indigenous peoples, celebrates the contributions of the Filipino-American community to our region and country. We stand with the Jewish community in engaging in self-reflection and humility. We acknowledge the battle against breast cancer and, and the impacts it has on so many. And we envision and work to build a, a world where everyone can live proudly as they are, no matter who they love. Of course, we do this not only on specific days, but throughout the year, and we strive to continue to improve in our equity work. You know, each one of these deserves that we could talk on for a number of minutes about those, so I don't want to do them injustice by just saying that. But it's important to know that it's not just here, but it's through our work that we do throughout the port in the community to, to recognize these days. Um, thank you for le your leadership on these issues as well. And a related note, I want to congratulate Crystal Roberts and Tina Soiki, who were celebrated last week as the most recent recipients of the Pat Davis Legacy of Leadership Award here at the port. Named after long-serving Commissioner Pat Davis, this recognition is given to port employees who have advanced possibilities for women at the Port of Seattle, stood for values in the face of adversity, and changed the conversation. I can think of no better examples of Commissioner Davis's values than Crystal and Tina, and please join me acknowledging their fantastic contributions over 70 years of combined service to the port. Speaking of advancing equity, you will see that that commitment to mission and vision reflected in our proposed maritime and economic development division budgets later this afternoon. Along with important investments in operations, capital programs, economic development and sustainability. We had a similar opportunity this morning during the aviation budget study session. I want to thank you again for your, your time and thoughtful, insightful input as we work towards next month's final budget proposal. Speaking of budgets, I'd like to again put a plug in for our upcoming public open houses later on this week. Tomorrow we'll hold a virtual open house for the Maritime and Economic Development Division budgets beginning at 4 p.m. The Aviation Division public open house will be held on the following day, October 13th at 4 p.m. Details for both events can be found on the port's 2023 budget webpage. Also speaking of the Aviation Division, last week we celebrated the first flight between Seattle-Tacoma International Airport and Papit, Tahiti. Air Tahiti Nui uh, becomes the first and only carrier to offer direct flights connecting the South Pacific and the Pacific Northwest. This new flight continues the amazing momentum of new business development at SEA. Tahiti Nui's service is one of the three new international airlines launched this year at SEA, including Turkish Airlines service to Istanbul and Finnair to Helsinki. Overall, 43 international services are currently in operation at SEA, providing nonstop flights to 28 unique international destinations through 25 airlines. I'd like to again express my gratitude to Commissioner Hasegawa and the City of Seattle's Senior Deputy Mayor Monisha Harrell for joining the gate ceremony. I, I saw videos of it and it looked fantastic. Congratulations to Aviation Managing Director Lance Little and his Air Service Development Team for their continuous success. Lastly, I'd like to put in a plug for the inaugural Responsible Outdoor Travel Summit taking place later this week on October 13th at the Bell Harbor International Conference Center. 
This conference will convene tourism, outdoor recreation, and conser conservation leaders, public and private sector organizations, and tribal governments to continue to drive the balance between a vibrant Washington tourism economy and environmental sustainability. This summit will focus on providing responsible travel to ecologically and culturally significant regions in Washington while protecting those assets and enhancing the traveler and host experiences. I'd like to thank uh, Commissioner Fellman for and David Blanford, Executive Director for the State of Washington, State of Washington Tourism, for their leadership in this inaugural summit. I look forward to uh, look forward to great success there. Moving to today's commission meeting, I'd like to highlight two items on our consent agenda. Items D and 8, 8D and 8E on the consent agenda have both are both requests for renewal and replacement of electrical infrastructure at two separate facilities. The first at the Maritime Industrial Center and the second at our main terminal at SEA. At the Marine Industrial Center, the marine environment is harsh on infrastructure, especially critical electrical systems. And both these requests replace aging critical infrastructure near the end of their useful life and support resiliency in our continued operations. Commissioners, I will note that the cost of the main terminal low voltage project is significant, but we feel comfortable asking for approval on consent agenda because of the straightforward nature of this project. The budget increase is due to an initial project estimate from 2018 that is being updated to account for increased material and labor costs as well as a small amount of added scope. I will say that most of our electrical projects have experienced supply chain issues and that's part of the contributing factor to this. Uh, in addition, I'm looking forward to two presentations today uh, in addition to our budget discussion. Item, item 11B is an update on our underwater noise mitigation and management plan. The port's leadership on this important effort to protect the lives and habitats of endangered marine mammals is something that we can be incredibly proud of. And we've, we've had a great partnership with Maritime Blue, the state of Washington, and the Washington Congressional Delegation as we continue to innovate on new ways to ensure that commerce, communities, and killer whales can coexist. Item 11C is a briefing on the key results of the Port of Seattle's Affirmative Action Program. We've made some admirable progress, but we still have much more work to do to fully embody the values and vision we have set for ourselves in this regard. I look forward to the discussion today and how we can further prioritize and advance these efforts. Commissioners, that concludes my report this afternoon. Thank you, Executive Director Metric. <clears throat> we are now at committee reports. Erica Chung, Commission Strategic Advisor, will provide the report. Good afternoon, President Calkins and Commissioners. I have four committee reports for you today. The Portwide Art Board convened by Commissioners Fellman and Hasegawa met on September 29th, where they were briefed on airport capital improvement projects and art opportunities. 2023 operation, operating budget in comparison to 2022 and status of little free library and upcoming temporary art exhibits. Board discussed art opportunities at Fisherman Terminal and how the port may engage with horizon opportunities, including Schmidt Ocean exhibit event at Pier 66 and 69. <coughs> board also discussed art opportunities at the airport and asked to be notified with open call for art so the board may further amplify opportunities with the art community. Commissioners Hasegawa and Fellman convened the Waterfront and Industrial Lands Committee on September 29. Port staff provided updates regarding design of the forthcoming Alaskan Way protected bike lane adjacent to Pier 66 and about the responsible outdoor travel summit, which will be held at the Bell Harbor International Conference Center on October 13th. 
On September 30th, Commissioners Cho and Mohammed convened the Equity and Workforce Development Committee. Commissioners reviewed a draft language access order and directed staff to add more detail and prescriptive elements to the draft, including an early 2023 check-in with commissioners on progress towards implementing the language access policy. Commissioners Mohammed also drew attention to Title II concerning at SEA. OEDI and aviation staff let her know that they would follow up to address these concerns. Commissioners also heard a presentation on the New York and LA Health Ports initiatives. The initiative set wage and or benefit floor for certain airport workers in those jurisdictions. Commissioner Mohammed noted that she is hearing from SEA airport workers that they don't have access to employer-sponsored health care. Commissioners direct a staff to determine the number of airport employers, including contractors, that offer employer-sponsored health care, and then determine the number of airport workers employed by each employer. At the September 30th Aviation Committee, Commissioners Cho and Mohammed were briefed on two items, improvements to the South 160th parking lot for TNC drivers at SEA, and a path forward on the on-demand taxi program. Commissioners reviewed multiple options for providing a covered rest area for drivers at South 160th lot or alternative off-site locations. Committee recommended a follow-up memo to aviation staff that outlines a path forward. Once the memo is reviewed by committee, that memo will be shared with all commissioners. Commissioners review the proposal for the proposed path forward for on-demand taxi program. The committee is developing their recommendations and aviation staff will brief all commissioners once they have received those recommendations. Commissioner 221s are scheduled for the end of October. This concludes my committee report. Thank you. Thank you, Erica. <clears throat> are there any follow-up questions regarding committees from commissioners? Yeah. <laughs> Speak now or forever hold your peace. I just wonder if future um, updates could also include outside committees, like convening of the Joint Advisory Committee or the Highline Forum. I don't see why not. Great idea. Thank you, Commissioner Hasegawa. We are now at the public comment section of our agenda. The Port Commission welcomes public comment as an important part of the public process. Comments are received and considered by the Commission in its deliberations. Each commenter will have two minutes to speak. You must limit remarks to topics related to the conduct of port business. These rules apply to introductory and concluding remarks. All remarks should be addressed to the commission as a body, not to individual commissioners. Disruptions of commission public meetings are prohibited. Disruptions include, but are not limited to the following. Refusal of a speaker to limit remarks to topics related to the conduct of port business. Threats and abusive or harassing behavior, including, but not limited to obscene language and gestures. Refusal of a speaker to comply with the allotted time set for the individual speaker's public comment. Leaving the podium or testimony table to physically approach commissioners or staff during one's public comment. Provided speakers may offer written materials to the commission clerk and any behavior that disrupts, disturbs, or otherwise impedes the meeting. Written materials provided to the clerk will be included in today's meeting record. The clerk has a list of those prepared to speak. We are taking comments from anyone who has signed up to speak virtually, as well as from anyone who has joined us in the chambers. When the clerk calls your name, if you are joining virtually, please unmute yourself. 
Then repeat your name for the record and state your topic related to the conduct of port business. If you're on the Teams meeting and are also streaming the meeting on the website, please mute the website stream to avoid feedback. If you're speaking from the room, please come to the testimony table, repeat your name, and state your topic related to the conduct of port business. For all speakers, if any topic is not related to the conduct of port business, the speaker will be asked to speak directly to items related to the conduct of the port or otherwise leave the microphone. As a reminder, comment time is limited to two minutes per person. Clerk Hart, can you please call our first speaker? Thank you. Yes, um, we will start virtually with Mr. David Goebel. David, if you could state, restate your name and your um, topic related to the conduct of the port for the record for me, please. Yeah. My name is David Goebel. I'm the president of the 501c3 Vachon Ferris Guys, formed in the aftermath of next-gen implementation circa 2015. I'm speaking today concerning a dire change to the port's bi-monthly start meeting, which stands for SEA CTAT Stakeholder Advisory Roundtable. It's the port's primary nexus for discussion of the airport's environmental impacts on surrounding communities. The group comprised primarily of representatives from airport fence-like communities originated in February 2018, and I personally attended every single pre-COVID in-person meeting as a member of the public, sometimes providing public comment. With the pandemic, the meeting series moved to Zoom and was com as was complex worldwide. In this format, the formal start members could see the members of the public and vice versa. Uh, only official start members would be unmuted by the host and allowed to speak, save during public comment period. In other words, it approximated to the degree technically practical a real in-person meeting. At the August start meeting, without any advance notice, the Zoom format was changed to, quote, webinar panelist mode, which makes the public invisible to start members and, very importantly, to each other. It basically reduces members of the public to just watching a video feed in isolation. During the time allotted for public comment, those who signed up are escorted from the shadows to make their comment one by one, then are rendered invisible again. This action by start insulating them, insulating members, insulating them from the members of the public, which are the focus of their charter is antithetical to open government. While this is Zoom commission on Teams meeting uh, has some of the attributes of web panel, panelists on format, uh, uh, we are requested to turn off our, our camera except when giving public comment. It is critically different better than the, than the, the new Zoom format on start. A, you, the commissioners at least know who and how many of the public are attending the meeting, and B, there is an in-person option for those who want the real thing. You all received an email from me with more information and graphics clearly illustrating the problem. If you don't recall getting it, check for an email from me sent on August 24th at 11.22 p.m. I've made entreaties to port staff and some start members to please uh, be an open government agency and revert to the previous Zoom format and go back to in-person meetings, rendering the issue moot. The minutes from last month's start steering committee meetings suggest that's not going to happen for the next couple weeks. I feel I have no other option but ask you, the elected commission members who are responsible for setting port policy to directly intervene before the next start meeting and A, go back to the previous member format or B, go back to, to pre-Zoom format or B, go back to in-person meetings. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Goebel. Uh, noted. We will uh, follow up. All right. Our second speaker. Yes. Thank you. Our next speaker is Heather Phil. I'm sorry if I pronounced that incorrectly, Heather. And a reminder, Heather, to restate your name yes. and the topic that you're going to speak to. Heather, I'm sorry to stop you. Could you restate your uh, topic related to the conduct of the port? Thank you.
Okay, proceed, Ms. Beal. Ms. Peel, can you take a, take a pause for a moment? We seem to have a sound problem, so the public is not hearing you. So just hold on one second. We'll restart that. Sorry, Ms. Peel. We've had lots of gremlins in our technology today. Well, and it's it's not yeah, just that in the room. It's also hot. the folks on teams are not hearing. Should her. I try this yeah. one? Yeah, come on over. I think we should just start okay. fresh, if that's okay, okay with you. No problem. You ready? Are we ready, Aubrey? Yeah. Okay. My name is Heather Peel. I'm a resident of Uptown. I wanted to thank you for um, going to hybrid meetings. I feel that more people can access your meetings and I'm grateful for that technology. I would just encourage you to assist people who express a frustration about trying to get into meetings. I have dealt with WebEx in the city as a volunteer and it's not working, so I'm glad to see you're not using that platform. I'm here today to talk about Peer 86. I sent a letter yesterday about that and that is picking up where I left off in 2019. The last I understood, the peer would be replaced with funds partly from Expedia. It's my understanding that Expedia has pulled out of that project. The peer is closed, but it appears to be closed only because vehicles can't drive onto it. I haven't seen any vehicles driven onto it. I have been out on the pier, and there's a lot of equipment that is disused and could probably just be removed. Um, there are shelters that don't have to be there if they're not in good condition. Um, and there are lights overhead that do need to be fixed or else removed because I heard that part of one had fallen in the past. So I believe with some minor safety improvements, the pier could be reopened. And as I stated in my email, the public fishing pier is used for subsistence fishing. Certainly, I'm sure that the Port Commission and the Port of Seattle want to continue to encourage that, not just at the mouth of the Duwamish River. And um, I, I, I just believe that it can be reopened with, with less than a full replacement. There was an engineer's uh, letter and condition report that I forwarded to Jennifer Jones-Stebbins. And I don't have the condition report anymore, but it basically said the decking could be replaced. There was another more comprehensive condition report that was submitted more recently and it appeared to uh, suggest that it was a very expensive project and that there was no alternative. And I, I would just ask that you ask an engineer to look at it rather than going with that condition report. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Peel. Uh, clerk, please call the next speaker. Yes, our next speaker from the room is Alex Zimmerman. Thank you. Alex, this is working now. Are you sure? Yes, it is. She's able to get it back on. Let me check. check this, please. It is working. As a reminder, please state your name and the topic to which the port topic to which you're going to speak today. 
My name is Alex Zimmerman, and I'm president of Stand Up Americas. Mr. Zimmerman, what? what is the topic to which you're going to speak I today? want to speak about 11C, about 2022 affirmative action. Okay, proceed. Thank you very much. Zihail, my dirty damn Nazi fascist mob bandita and psychopath, a mafia reminder, cartel. What? Disruptive language, disruptive behavior that's off-port topic does not pertain to public comment here. You need to keep your remarks exclusively on port-related matters. Exactly. This is exactly what I want talking about. So what is your, you talking about? Keep your comments related to port-related. It's related. your interpretation of new rules. It's exactly affirmative action of 22. This is exactly what I want speaking about. Okay, what is happening in 22? Keep it to that topic then, sir. No, I want to speak about affirmative action in 22. It's very important. What has happened in 22 in with affirmative action in port in Seattle is come to absolutely absurd level. It's go for 10 years right now, slow by slow. But 22 is like a peak right now, what has happened right now. Why? Because, because, you know what this means, totally control everything. Is this affirmative action what is never will become to life? Is this exactly what has happened? How this can be something change when salary in Seattle right now $120,000 for one year jump by 20 percentage, average salary. So what has happened when this minority, disabled woman, what is you belong to affirmative action? They will go out from port two. Because sport in Seattle cannot be separate. It's exactly one part. It's exactly what is I want to speak to you. And I spoke about this almost for 20 years every day. When we not stopping this low class, what is totally control us, and intelligent, smart people will become too power. Nothing will be changes, will be worse and worse. In 10 years, every year, it go by down and down and down because everybody controlling right now very low class people is this exactly what is I talk for many years. This finish not only in Seattle, it's finish America in Seattle. It's a problem what is we have right now. What is you talking and your rules what is you implement right now cannot be changed because when we not stopping this low class P Bipas, you know what is mean, elect similar people, what is low class, low professional, you know what is mean, it can be only worse. This cannot be better. Seattle right now, this for aristocrat city, and I live here for 25 years. Thank you, Mr. How is this possible? Thank you very much. All right. Do we have any other public comment commenters signed up? We do not. All right. Is there anyone else who did not sign up who's interested in speaking either in person or virtually? Okay. Uh, with that, we have concluded public comment. <clears throat> Mr. Commission President, just yes. noting for the record that we have not received any written testimony today. Sorry. Thank you, Clerk Hart, for uh, clarifying. Hearing no further public testimony, we'll move to the consent agenda. Items on the consent agenda are considered routine and will be adopted by one motion. Items removed from the consent agenda will be considered separately immediately after adoption of the remaining consent agenda items. Item 8C has been removed from the consent agenda. 
At this time, the chair will entertain a motion to approve the consent agenda covering items 8A, 8B, 8D, 8E, and 8G. So moved. Seconded. The motion was made and seconded. Commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called. Beginning with Commissioner Fellerman. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Hasegawa. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Four ayes, zero nays for this item. The motion passes. We will now address items removed from the consent agenda. Clerk Hart, can you please read the item into the record? We will then hear from Executive Director Metric to introduce the item. Commissioner Hasegawa will also be the first to speak as she requested the item be pulled. Thank you. Um, this is agenda item 8C, authorization for the executive director to execute a contract in the amount of $3,500,000 for contracted law enforcement services. Commissioner, <coughs> Commissioners, this item requests that our police department be allowed to hire contracted law enforcement officers. Without going into the security details, let me say that contracted law enforcement officers, otherwise known as CLEOs, will boost our police force numbers and enable <clears throat> and enable our airport police staffing level to be commensurate with the rebounding numbers of airline travelers. Like other police agencies, our port police department has lost several officers to retirement. We are, reti we are hiring new officers, but this is a continuous process as more officers retire as the years progress, not just this year, but the years progress ahead of us. The added CLEOs are necessary for safety and security of our airport. I want to remind you that we plan to use contracted officers only for the next two years until we are able to hire more Port of Seattle police officers, get them through the State Academy, and get them fully trained on our port, port policies and procedures. This is the, this is the right short-term plan to help ensure safety and security of our airport, cruise ship operations, and other port gateways and facilities. Further, should you approve with the use of CLEOs today, please be aware I do not plan to execute the contract until we make more progress at the bargaining table with our own officers. I want to ensure that we have the right incentives in place before executing the contract. I'll now turn it over to Chief Mike Villa, who I believe is with us virtually, and uh, Director of Aviation Security, Wendy Ryder, in, in case uh, for short presentations and answer any questions. I see Chief Villa, there he is, so thank you. Thank you, uh, Director Metric, and good afternoon, Commissioners. Um, as you know, the primary mission of our police department is the safety and security of our properties, uh, employees, stakeholders, uh, traveling public. And our staff has been working diligently uh, to fulfill that objective. But <clears throat> just like many other law enforcement organizations, uh, we have been challenged with staffing. Our officers are continuing to work a lot of overtime, and we still have shifts that uh, we would like to fill uh, to ensure optimal safety. Hiring contracted law enforcement officers is a short-term strategy to increase our staffing capabilities uh, and thereby enhance our security beginning now and over the next one to two years. As you know, it takes anywhere from four to 12 months from date of hire before officers are trained and deployable. Whereas CLEOs, they're current Washington certified police officers who are capable of working immediately. Uh, during the next one to two years, uh, during this period of time, uh, through the efforts of our newly established and highly energetic recruitment team uh, and support of other staff and initiatives, I'm confident that we will staff up to appropriate levels, at which time uh, we will be able to phase out CLEOs. Uh, 
I appreciate the commissioner's uh, consideration of this proposal and commitment to safety and security. Uh, with me here today is Deputy Chief Thomas uh, as well, um, there in person. And then as uh, Director Metric uh, uh, mentioned, Wendy Ryder, uh, if you have any questions. Or Wendy, I'm not sure if you if you want to make some comments prior to that, but we're here to respond to any questions you might have. Commissioners, any questions? Thank you, Chief and staff, for your presentation on this item. Um, thank you, Chief and staff, for your presentation on this item. Um, I've pulled this because I want to um, have the opportunity for the members of the public to understand how we are um, considering this budget ask. Um, and so I think my, f my first question for you is, um, what is uh, what is Clio and um, and what is Seattle's finest and um, and what officers are involved in this pool? Sure. So so Clio's um, contracted law enforcement officers. They are um, current uh, police officers in Washington State. Um, that are certified uh, just like any other officer would be certified. Um, a, a majority of those contracted law enforcement officers are um, going to be uh, from King County um, agencies such as uh, Seattle and um, I'm, I'm not sure all the agencies, but agencies such as Bellevue, Renton and those agencies, um, they're uh, they are officers who uh, their respective chiefs have um, authorized and approved them to um, to work contracted work. So it would be off-duty work, contracted. Uh, they are governed by their department's policies and procedures. Um, once they're uh, approved by their chiefs, then uh, they can work for Seattle's finest. And so Seattle's finest uh, they employ over 400 officers from Washington State, um, and then Seattle's finest. Um, they then work with other uh, agencies or entities to contract these officers. So, uh, for instance, with Seattle's finest, um, they have contracts um, with Seattle uh, to do a lot of the uh, some of the traffic control um, uh, that that occurs in Seattle or, or other entities within Seattle. Um, they contract with the University of Washington. Uh, to uh, augment uh, their police force during particular games, basically, and times where they need the additional officers. So um, so hopefully that explains uh, what Cleos are and, and who Seattle's Finest is. Thank you. So I'm hearing that the officers who are a member of the Seattle's Finest pool are certified by the Criminal Justice Training Commission and meet all states' minimum standards for training. Yes, that's correct. And then I'm also hearing that they will be deployed first and foremost foremost um, these contracted officers to conduct traffic control which is something that is within the purview of their their own post with their home department correct yes that is that is correct so um, without getting into all the deployment issues um, our plan is to uh, deploy them first on uh, the drives and to do traffic control there do we plan to do any sort of initial training with these contracted officers so that they are aware of Port of Seattle Police Department policies specifically? Yes, we do. Um, DC Deputy Chief Thomas can, can speak to this further. We can provide further details. But when they arrive and come into um, um, on shift, basically, uh, they will um, meet with one of our sergeants who will give them a, a briefing, go over the protocols, 
um, provide them with some training. You know, we have fairly high standards when it comes to uh, customer service and how we how we operate within the port, and so they will receive some initial training. I think that's critical, seeing as how proud we are here at the Port of Seattle Police um, Department for the level of training and intentionality that goes into equipping our officers to be um, to be as effective as they can um, as protectors of the peace. Um, I'm wondering um, who do officers who are who do officers check in with at the Port of Seattle when they're coming on board for a shift? Yeah, so so if it's our officers, we always do a briefing and they check in with the supervisor, the sergeant, and so with contracted law enforcement officers, they will do the same thing. They will check in with our um, sergeants, uh, get their assignment, and, and like I mentioned, the, the briefing and some of that initial training. And um, uh, they will receive an initial training um, before their first deployment? Uh, yes, that's correct. And um, they, they will receive that. So with the contracted law enforcement officers, um, they, may, they may come and work for us multiple times. And so that first time that they come, they will receive um, more of an initial training that they will receive from, again, our sergeant. And that training plan is currently being put together by Deputy Chief Thomas and his staff. Um, and then once they, after that initial training, if they're coming back to the port to work, um, they'll still receive, they're still going to check in with the sergeant and they'll still receive a, a briefing, an assignment, and any initial additional information that's necessary for that shift. Say a member of the public had a positive or negative interaction with a contracted officer that they wanted to report. Um, how are complaints and commendations handled with a contracted officer? Yeah, so we would do with a contracted officer, we would do an initial uh, intake if somebody called us and they had a complaint. Um, we would do the initial um, investigative work, I guess you could say, of, of talking to any witnesses or, or obtaining any video. But then, you know, those officers are accountable to their departments. And so then we would forward whatever information that we were able to initially obtain uh, to their department. Um, and then their departments could do those investigations. Now, I, I do want to add here, though, that um, if, if it was a complaint and and really with any of these officers that come and work um, at our facilities, if at any point in time um, we don't believe that the performance is really to the standards that we want to have, um, all we need to do is, number one, we could send them home during their shift and we could just meet with them. The sergeant can make that decision. Um, the other thing is that um, let's say we get a complaint after their shift is concluded um, or we validate, confirm some of the information in the complaint um, or one of our officers or a sergeant, um, an employee of ours notices, you know, some performance that really isn't acceptable for us. It's only a matter of a phone call and that officer would be barred from coming back and working on our facilities. And so we really have a lot of ability there to, um, um, to make those decisions. I see, in my view, police accountability efforts as existing on a spectrum of preventative to reactive. On the preventative end, there's training, and on the reactive side, there are things like filing complaints and issuing investigations. Now, in a worst-case scenario, say there was a critical incident, um, would that be investigated or, or reviewed by the Port of Seattle Police or the officer's home department? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And so, um, you know, we would do like a, um, 
an initial assessment of whatever the situation is and, and gather and assist the other agency as far as conduct goes. So so I guess it would depend. There's different variables in there. And Deputy Chief Thomas, feel free to, to add anything I'm going to say here. But, you know, we, we will look at critical incidents that occur on our properties. So if we had a mutual aid response um, and a mutual aid team responded and we had an incident, you know, we would do that debrief and, and evaluation of it and lessons learned um, after action report. If there's performance issues with a particular officer or concerns that we have, um, we would then send whatever information we've done from our review to the home agency and the home agency would be the one that would be responsible as far as um, you know whatever accountability steps they want to take with that particular officer but again if we had any concerns um, we could prevent that officer from returning the port of seattle police are affiliated with teamsters local 117 what's their view on this matter so we're we're in um, bargaining um, negotiations with 117 uh, regarding um, Clio's and, and as Director Metric said that you know our, our intent really isn't to um, to sign a contract with Seattle's finest until we've um, gotten to the point in our bargaining um, where, where we're satisfied and um, and I'm I, I could just say I'm very I'm very positive there's been some really good positive movement regarding this but we're continuing to work with them and um, Chief Via, please talk well, to me about the current view of and the current state of our police. You just recently presented on our um, the Port of Seattle Police Annual Report. Um, how many officers? Um, what what is our vacancy rate right now, and how is our officer morale? Sure. Um, so our our vacancy rate we're we're right about uh, just under thirty percent as far as vacancies go and so and i'm i'm also just including in that number um, officers that are non-deployable status so when we hire an officer uh, they begin their their training and um, and that training does take some time so so we have a, a good number of vacancies um, as far as morale of of the team you know i think it varies from officer to officer i i speak with some officers and and um you know they have really high morale <laughs> uh, as far as where departments going and are in the direction um, other officers that whose morale is not as low you know one of the things that does affect morale um, is is the staffing levels the the overtime requirements um, you know our officers are working a lot of overtime um, a lot of them don't necessarily want to work at overtime and they'd rather have that time with their families and so you know that is something that also impacts the morale um, as I mentioned before, we're we're negotiating a contract right now, and we're in the, we're in that process. And so, anytime you have an uh, a contract that's still open, you know that impacts morale. So that's something that, you know, I know our labor team has been labor relations has been working really hard to try to um, conclude that contract, and hopefully we'll have something to bring before the commission before too long. So there's certainly things that have impacted and are impacting the morale, um, but I do think that. Once we get through some of these issues uh, with staffing and we can reduce some of that overtime requirements, um, we can get a contract that we're definitely going to see an improvement in morale. My next question is um, for in, in terms of, of contracting for police, why, why, why are we asking for so long? Why two years? Why not one year? 
if we've never done this before, um, why is two years what, what we're asking for? Sure. Well, first of all, let me back up and just say that um, we're asking uh, approval for two years. Um, we don't know if we're going to need Cleos for that long. Um, the contract that you will see when it does come to you, um, at least currently what's in the contract, is that with 30 days uh, notice, we can, um, we can end that contract. Um, and so it may be six months, a year, a year and a half. The reason I'm asking for two years is, is I'm, I am a more long-term strategic planner, and I want to make sure that we have the resources that we're going to need. Um, when we hire an officer from the day they start, depending if they're a lateral officer or an entry, it's four months for a lateral officer before we can deploy them solo. Um, and for an entry officer with um, the academy and the time it takes to get in the academy, it can be up to a year. And so while while our recruitment team is is really uh, making good great strides and um, and we're recruiting officers, you know we're still having officers who are retiring um, who are leaving the profession, and so we're still going to have vacancies. And I, I really think it's going to take us a year to two years before we're at the point where we're fully staffed. So that's so that's why it's two years. Chief Via, this really, in my view, boils down to a matter of risk. On one end. Working through Seattle's finest, we have no way of knowing. Uh, we don't get to choose which officer comes out of that pool. They're deployed to us. We have no way of knowing how many hours that officer has already worked that week, if they're already overworked. We don't know their, uh, their level of training, their history of complaints. But what we do have is um, a guarantee, a signed approved letter from their own chief saying that they're they're okay to, to come and take on this additional shift. We reserve the right to say that we don't want them back. Um, they have to check in with our sergeant at the beginning of every shift. We're gonna train them up before they even go out there and start patrolling on behalf of the Port of Seattle Police. Uh, we're gonna look into additional resources for continued training for them. And we know what we get if we don't do this. Without a change, we continue to overwork our own officers we ignore their plea for support. We contribute to, um, to being overworked, exhaustion, and morale, and that's not ideal for anybody. Um, and really, it just continues that we have an officer shortage and we don't operationally get the service um, that the Port of Seattle needs. So in balancing the risk, um, I will be voting in support of this so that you have the resources chief to make sure that um, that that the need is met um, because the top priority is public safety and when I think public safety that includes all of our community members from at large to our customers to our own staff and our officers we have to set our officers up to be successful um, in approving this I am also acknowledging out loud that this does not speak to the root of the issue which is that we have an officer shortage and so I am going to couple this with um, uh, this my my yes vote with a couple of uh, requests um, uh, I request that we have a briefing on a recruitment strategy in public so that the, the public knows um, what we are doing in order to um, be able to hire folks into our wonderful, supportive, excellent Port of Seattle community of employees, including our police department. Um, I would love to understand um, what the chiefs 
are looking for in order to approve their officers to get out there because those chiefs don't want their own officers overworked either. Um, I would love um, for us to expand our onboarding for these contracted officers so that they um, don't just meet the state standards of training, but they're actually meeting the Port of Seattle Police Department standards of training. Um, and I um, have also asked staff to explore the prospect of administering a voluntary survey two of these contracted officers that we can begin to collect data from them about who they are, the level of training they have, and, um, and that might be um, a helpful accountability or insight tool for ourselves. Um, and then the final thing is that if in an absolute worst case scenario, if there was some sort of a critical incident where there was a considerable level of public interest that although it would be handled by the home department um, primarily that we do take it upon ourselves to make sure that as commissioners and as, as a port, uh, we are communicating at a, whatever we can in a timely, culturally appropriate fashion as many updates as we can around that incident. So. Um, thank you, Chief Via, for answering all the questions, and thank you to the staff for taking time to make sure that we're being judicious. Commissioner Mohammed. Um, well, first of all, I just want to thank Commissioner Hasegawa for your leadership in that line of questioning, um, and I also want to thank the Chief for being here and <coughs> answering um, all of those questions and for your presentation as well as uh, Executive Director Metric for uh, your introduction of this item. Um, similar to Commissioner Hasegawa, uh, I am also very much interested in addressing the root cause of this issue. Um, I think it's fair to say that we are seeing unprecedented challenges in hiring, retaining, um, broadening diversity um, for our police departments all across the region today. And um, I have seen other organizations focus on um, broadening diversity in our police departments by looking at um, some of our recruitment practices as well as um, looking at exams. Um, there have been um, initiatives where folks uh, focus on um, trying to hire folks who reflect the community that they are serving. And um, I was asked this question actually on Mr. Eddie Rye's radio station. One of the things that he, he was asking me was, how do we recruit m more black police officers, for instance, and um, folks from communities of color um, while maintaining this you know, high standards for our, our police department, but really looking at our recruitment process and seeing what are some of the barriers um, for communities of color in joining the force. And um, there has been, um, I've consistently heard there's unnecessary exams that are put in place um, for, a num for numbers of folks who feel like um, um, it's preventing them from being able to join the, the force. And so I don't know if that's the case or if you've heard things like that with um, how to join the, the Port of Seattle Police Department, but that is something that I'm interested in learning more about and seeing um, what are some of the testings that are put in place um, when it comes to hiring candidates. And um, similar to Commissioner Hasegawa, I would like to see the recruitment program aimed at um, hiring residents from our community. The only uh, additional comment I would make is uh, 
to emphasize that this is suboptimal and a stopgap measure. And I, I don't think there's any um, dispute amongst anyone up here or with the chief or executive director metric. Um, and, and because that's the case, I want us to, to be able to close out this program as quickly as possible. And to do that, we need to hire uh, <clears throat> full-time officers as quickly as possible. I know that you are uh, leaning into that process as much as you can. It's a tough labor market right now. Um, but the sooner we can be fully staffed and um, not have to utilize outside officers for our department, the better. All right, any further? Okay, Commissioner Fellman. I just want to thank you all for addressing the questions and your due diligence in filling up those jobs and appreciate all your commitment to what you do. So thank you. Okay. Um, hearing no further Mr. questions. Mr. President, um, Chief Via has his hand up. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Chief Via. I didn't see your hand there. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say that um, I'm really excited about uh, bringing and presenting to the commissioners our recruitment team or our recruitment plan. Um, along with that, the team. So they recently gave me a briefing, and and I just I thank you for the um, for the questions. I thank you for the even just the thoughtfulness of a lot of the questions and recruitment and what are we doing. Um, and and so I'm I, I very much welcome and look forward to that. Um, so anyway, so I just want to voice that. So thank you very much. Okay, hearing no further questions for this item, is there a motion and a second? I move approval of this of this item. Second. It has been moved and seconded. Clerk Hart, please call the roll for the vote. Commissioners, please say aye or nay when your name is called. Beginning with Commissioner Fellman. Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Haskawa? Aye. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Aye. Thank you. And Commissioner Calkins. Aye. Thank you. Four ayes, zero nays for this item. With that, the motion passes. Okay, for the next item on the agenda, uh, we are now moving to item 11, presentation and staff reports. Clerk Hart, can you please read the first item into the record, and then Executive Director Metric will introduce it. Thank you. This is agenda item 11A, the 2023 Maritime and EDD Operating and CIP Budgets Briefing. Commissioners, this presentation is the second budget briefing in the series of presentations on our proposed budget for 2023. At your last meeting, you heard the proposed central services budget, in the, and this morning you had a study session on the aviation division budget. Today's presentation will focus on two of our key business units, maritime and economic development. One thing that you'll hear today is more focused discussion of how these operating, uh, operating division budgets deliver on our mission and vision to ensure public benefit to our region and its residents. We achieve this not only by efficiently conducting our operations in ways that create jobs and economic activity, but also by investing in workforce sustainability and reducing impacts of our operations. Finally, I want to note that this budget proposal and all of our other divisions are using an assumption at this point in the budget process of a 2% annual increase in the tax levy over the next five years. The actual tax levy decision is yours to make, and we look forward to getting your feedback on that topic at the October 25th commission meeting. The 2% number, the number is only a stand-in until you've completed a review of the budget, including the, uh, plan, uh, the uh, recommended plan of finance. But I wanted to make cl that clear, especially since it will be a placeholder holder in the materials for the public session and the, uh, the draft budget uh, that will come out later. This planning assumption and rationale were discussed with the commission at the retreat first on August 1st, 
of 2023 or 2022 on the 23 budget again we'll incorporate all of your feedback on these these and other items in advance in the final budget proposal that you'll hear next month with that I look forward to today's discussion and your feedback and our presenters are Kelly Zupan director of maritime fi finance and budget we also have uh, uh, Dave McFadden managing director economic development and a uh, division and Stephanie Jones Stebbins managing director of the maritime division so with that Kelly thanks Steve good afternoon commissioners executive director metric um, we'll go ahead and if you want to go to the first slide there. here is a timeline of where we stand in the budget process this morning you were briefed on the airport side of the port budget and now we will present the seaport side beginning with maritime operating budget led by managing director Stephanie Jones Stebbins which includes the maritime division the joint venture representing the port interest in the Northwest Seaport Alliance and the stormwater utility we will then present ec the economic development operating budget led by managing director Dave McFadden and we'll finish with the briefing of our capital improvement plan or CIP um, I'm gonna I'm now gonna turn it over to Stephanie Jones Stebbins as she uh, walks through our priorities and you know I go thanks Kelly and thank you commissioners and executive director metric so uh, we're gonna I know this you've already been through a long morning of budget uh, presentations and I know our budget is smaller than the aviation budget we make up for it uh, and being complex and also I think there's a number of interesting policy uh, questions as well so next slide please uh, and actually one more slide I want to start by showing kind of the maritime strategies or priorities uh, shown a little differently than than you saw for the aviation division but I, I think of them graphically in my head and across the bottom you see really the foundation that we rely on everything you know our employees need to go home safely at the end of the day so safety and resiliency is a foundation financial sustainability we need to be a going concern uh, we also need to take care of the customers that make up our maritime businesses and those are the things we need to do every day and in fact a couple years ago during the pandemic we really were very focused especially on safety and financial sustainability as we've come into now the recovery very solidly we focus on the longer-term strategies the things that to me we need to really um, deliver on if we want to be a viable business in the city of Seattle and those are sustainability equity uh, and innovation that's actually kind of hard to read innovation in the middle but in order to really deliver on sustainability while we're uh, while we are a successfully financially successful business that serves our customers we really need innovation and if we are successful at all of that that makes us a long-term player in the ocean economy that's how our strategies really fit together uh, to me uh, next slide please so starting with the bottom line up front for our budget we're catching up to where we were prior to the pandemic our revenues are up 11 percent from our forecast for this year uh, up we're up 29 percent compared to our budget for this year I'm not I don't really feel like that's a fair comparison as much as it sounds like a great number because we were really when we were planning for 2022 we were really deep in the pandemic so a better comparison is really to our forecasted our 
Uh, really the big drivers there are both cruise occupancy increasing, still not anywhere close to what it was prior to the pandemic on a per vessel basis, but it is increasing and our cruise rates will also increase. We are introducing for the first time a differential rate for weekends and weekdays as well. And our recreational boating uh, also occupancy is up. It's a great story based on the hard work of people at the facility really improving our processes. So I. Um, Kelly will share a little bit more about that when we get to that uh, point. Our expenses are up uh, more than our revenues. Our expenses are up 14 percent, uh, up 8.2 million from our budgeted forecast for this year. I'm going to start at the bottom and kind of talk about uh, the issues why. Of course, inflation is in impacting everything. We are also um, investing more in equity initiatives. You'll hear a little bit about that on the next slide. We are making uh, big investments in improving our overall capital project delivery, and a key part of that is standing up a planning department. Uh, of course, investments in both uh, uh, our port workforce in terms of both salaries, we're adding uh, a number of new employees. You'll hear more about that from Kelly. Uh, the t 10 of those, which is uh, which is three quarters of the new employees will be in our uh, five in our environmental team and five in our maintenance team. Uh, so they will, um, that's a, a big number for a department our size. And then finally, uh, increases in our environmental programs. Our environmental, uh, maritime environmental budget is up 50% year over year. Some of that is exciting things that are commission priorities like green corridor and, and adding octopuses to, uh, to our kelp, uh, and some of it's kind of more, um, uh, you might call mundane. It's things like monitoring uh, our habitat and um, uh, developing environmental standards for our projects, but that is a, a significant uh, in increase to our overall budget. Next slide, please. I want to talk specifically about um, some of our equity and budgeting highlights. Uh, we do have a uh, uh, women and minority business uh, goal of 15 to 20 percent. We are including funds for both the park strategic planning as well as specific funds at Ha'apus Park. Uh, that's uh, based uh, not only on the plans we had before, but a little bit more targeted based on uh, commissioner input. Cruise NOI is specifically targeted towards uh, increasing outreach to women and minority owned businesses and workforce development support. Uh, and let's see, we've also specifically budgeted time for represented workers to participate in training and equity initiatives such as participate in it, participation in employee resource groups. One of the things that we've heard is that salaried employees have, uh, have uh, you know, those of us who work here in the ivory tower have a, are able to get away and participate in uh, things like employee resource groups and trainings much harder for our uh, represented employees. So we have specifically included budget measures for them to participate. And finally, not listed here, I want to mention that we have included maritime funds for uh, human trafficking efforts as well. Uh, next slide, please. I want to spend a second talking about the overall maritime uh, division trends. So this shows the maritime division as a whole and uh, a little uh, over the years back to 2014 and then you can see the dip there during the pandemic years and uh, just a little context for you, the green on these bars, uh, the bar chart is our expenses 
and the dot with the line connecting is our revenues. The green is the direct cost. This is the folks who work at our facilities, actually our maritime employees running our facilities. Our light blue are things like maintenance and environmental services that support our division but aren't actually um, the direct costs. And the dark blue is uh, our corporate costs that are allocated. And that's the, port, the maritime division share of overall port costs. That's things like accounting and human resources and our share of your salaries, for instance, or your the commission office costs. And then finally, the gray is depreciation, which is how we measure whether we're paying for our investments, uh, our capital investments. So overall, we have had, prior to the pandemic, our goal was to um, pay, for, pay for all of our costs, including our infrastructure investments. And that was based on um, a, a strategy at the time that we no longer have, which included uh, a construction of a third cruise terminal. So we are now faced with, uh, I think the question is, do we continue with that as a goal, getting to um, break even? Uh, including paying for all of our costs, is, is that still a reasonable uh, uh, target for, uh, for the Maritime Division? So that, that's, I think, one thing that I, uh, I think about. Uh, next slide. And this slide shows a little bit about how our businesses fit together as a portfolio. Some of our businesses uh, make money. Some of our businesses lose money put together as a whole. Uh, you can kind of see the trends. We start on cruise on the far left side, uh, and then grain. These are our two businesses that uh, bring in a pretty sizable amount of net income, even after paying for all of our infrastructure costs. Uh, recreational boating is about a break-even business. Uh, and then our fishing businesses, both uh, uh, Fisherman's Terminal as well as our larger fishing vessels at 91, both are um, subsidized by other businesses, leaving us with a net, um, uh, net operating income of about the same as we had last year, but, uh, or our forecast rather, but below, um, quite a bit below zero. So I think actually a, a question uh, that I would find of great interest to discuss with Commission in a study session sometime is what is an appropriate target and how do you see these things fitting together. So that's an overview. And now to get into more detail, I'm going to turn this over to Kelly Zupan, who will um, share more detail. Kelly. Thanks for setting the context, Stephanie. Um, next slide, please. I'm going to quickly walk you through the key components of our Maritime Division budget. If you would like further detail, please reference the appendix or have staff reach out after the briefing with any additional information you would like. Um, revenues are up. Revenues are up $17 million from last year's budget and just under $8 million higher than what we expect in the year with. Cruise occupancy is projected as 85% versus the 75% we had in 2022 budget. Prior to COVID, we typically had occupancy numbers between 100 and 104%. Grain volumes are projected to be flat. We expect to see some revenue increases in our marinas and commercial operations based on combination of rate increases and process improvements, which we will discuss later. Expenses 
Oh, next slide, please. Expenses are up about $8.2 million or 14% from the 2022 budget. We added 14 new FTEs to support environmental maintenance, capital development, and grant or cost recovery services. Outside of general payroll increases, we stood up a planning department and park strategy and direct costs. For support services, we ramped up environmental programs and for central services, there's a significant increase in police deployment. Next slide, please. I will move quickly through the next series of slides which inform trends and financial positioning for each of our core business groups, starting with crews. After a couple COVID-driven down years, we are expecting a large increase in revenue and profit in 2023. This is driven by increased rates and occupancy. You can see this business line brings in over $13 million of annual profit after investment cost to the Maritime Division. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, recreational boating revenues are planned to increase 1.9 million from rate and occupancy increases. Police and higher allocations are driving the central services expense growth you see in there. Basically, they, through the pandemic, recreational boating stood up pretty well and they were able to absorb more costs and that's how we base our allocations that go out to the business lines. Next slide, please. And this slide shows the backup for the occupancy increase in the budget for rec boating. You can see the year-to-date occupancy represented by the green line is far outpacing the five-year average represented by the solid blue line. This is driven by process improvements at Shilshul Bay Marina, allowing for faster turnaround of slips. The higher dotted line shows the budgeted occupancy um, reflected by these uh, positive improvements. Next slide, please. It's a great news story when we uh, can improve our processes to improve revenue. Everybody loves it. When we improve revenue by raising rates, everybody doesn't love it. So, and, and it really the credit goes to the team out there. So I, I did want to highlight that. Elliott Bay Fishing and Commercial Operations revenue is primarily from moorage at Terminal 91, but also consists of several other smaller docks and dolphins serving the maritime businesses. You can see that at the bottom of the chart right there, the various, um, the various properties that, that are included as well. Um, there have been revenue losses the past couple years with the completion of the tunnel project impacting the north pier of Terminal 46 and the retirement of, of the Ocean Phoenix, which is a really large processing vessel. We are beginning to see newer vessels come online and planning for an increase in uh, 2022. Next slide, please. Ship canal fishing in operations is primarily made up of Fisherman's Terminal, but also includes Salmon Bay Marina and the Maritime Industrial Center. Revenues are up modestly, but Fisherman's Terminal is an expensive facility to maintain and operate. The Ship Canal and Elliott Bay Fishing and Commercial Groups do have an outsized positive impact on regional jobs and economic value. Next slide, please.
Maritime portfolio management revenues are up 2% with expenses up 11%. As vacancies are increasing, um, our tenant improvement costs along with appraisal and brokerage fees. We have some vacancies and it's, we're planning on spending some money to get those filled next year. This business line is expected to see a 3.5 million increase in annual revenue and operating income as that Trammell Crow ground lease at Terminal 106 is fully realized over the next three to four years. Next slide, please. The final business for Maritime Division is the grain terminal at Terminal 86. This is leased by Louis, Dry Louis Dreyfus and generates about five to six million of revenue each year with very little direct expense. Um, so that does it with our business groups. And next we will review uh, the service groups of marine maintenance, seaport, waterfront project management, maritime environmental and sustainability and security. Uh, next slide, please. Um, marine maintenance costs are down from 2022 budget as about $2.3 million in small works outside services moved to waterfront project management. Absent that, ex absent that expenses would be up about 5 to 6%. I want to point out that uh, marine maintenance supports um, the Northwest Seaport Alliance, the Economic Development Division, Stormwater Utility, so that the pie chart on the left there shows the, the support of the different, uh, the different um, divisions and the Northwest Seaport Alliance. Okay. Uh, next slide, please. Waterfront project management is the group responsible for delivering the major projects in the seaport for both the Port of Seattle and the Northwest Seaport Alliance. I'd like to note two items. First, you see that $2.3 million of small works expense transferred in from maintenance that I just spoke about. Otherwise, expense growth would be up in an expected range given the FTEs we added last year in 2022 budget. Second, you can see about 70% of the payroll is capitalized. This is the team that supports the capital plan, not just for the Port of Seattle, but for the Northwest Seaport Alliance as well. Next slide, please. The Maritime and, the Maritime and Sustainability Group budget grew 50% from 2022. As we have added several FTEs the past two years, the team has ramped up their outside contracted labor and services to address their goals. The next slide shows detail for this work. You want next slide, please? You can, you can see we have broken the work into several categories, with habitat and air being the largest. We did get some some late feedback on naming uh, conventions for some of these projects too. So um, if, you, if you've got any questions about them, let me know. And Sandy is here, as, Sandy Kilroy is here as well. And, and, we and have Sarah some folks Auger is also yeah. on the line. Yeah. Okay, next slide. Um, this slide shows the security department where they are deploying their contracted security. The one thing that stands out in this side is 
the over $600,000 of security costs at Terminal 46, with about a third of that borne by the Port of Seattle and the other two-thirds bo two borne by Northwest Seaport Alliance. So it is expensive having a, not having a tenant out at that terminal on an annual basis. So next slide, please. And this is uh, the list of the full-time the FTEs that we added next year. Um, you can see we have the 14 listed below. Um, there is detail. There is detail on slide 52 in the appendix for each of those positions if you've got any questions. Now we'll move on to the joint venture and stormwater utility summaries. Next slide, please. This slide represents the Port of Seattle interest in the Northwest Seaport Alliance joint venture with Port of Tacoma. They plan on delivering about 50.1 million of net income after depreciation to the port. We then back out about, we then back out 2 million pertaining to half of the Terminal 46 lease payment. Other revenue includes reimbursement for maintenance work and the anticipated green lease revenue that we're looking forward to. Um, currently, we have the status quo budgeted for Terminal 46, so there could be upside if we get the right tenant in. The expenses primarily include maintenance, security, and then some overhead for the leg legacy remediation work that environmental and the, fi and the finance team are doing. Okay. Next slide, please. Here is the income statement for the stormwater utility. Like the airport, this operates under a cost recovery model where the rates charged to tenants and both, port of, and both the Port of Seattle and Northwest Seaport Alliance unleased space are geared to covering the long-term operating and capital investment costs. I don't wanna to spend too much time here as the team will be coming forward in two weeks with a detailed presentation for adoption of what is likely to be a 4.6% rate increase in the coming year. And that, that is it for the Maritime Division. I know if now's a good time to pause for any questions. Yeah, let's, uh, let's pause in between the divisions. Thank you, Kelly. Any questions from commissioners? Go ahead, Commissioner Fellman. Why, thank you. Uh, thanks so much for that presentation, and I'm always delighted to see our maritime budget doing better and appreciate all the work that has gone into this. And um, I have a couple of questions. One is, um, you know, with the grain uh, revenue forecast being down, I just read this article about, you know, amongst all the travesties associated with climate change is that the Mississippi is being dewatered. And there's 100 barges right now stuck in the Mississippi. And I was just asking John Wolf, is this, you know, one man's problems and others benefit? <laughs> that this obviously getting grain out of the Midwest usually often goes south. And so this, Mr. Dreyfus might find his calculations to be needing to be updated. And so this could be, and, and, and I thought um, of late this was a good time for grain. I thought, especially with the challenges in Ukraine, I thought exports of, U.S. grains were up, and so I was just thinking that 
we're maybe being a little pessimistic. Well, these uh, forecasts came directly from, from Louis Dreyfus. So, um, but we, I will follow up on that and uh, bring up those points and uh, I will follow up. Not that I suggest I know any more about yeah. his business than he does, but it was just a recent story that you know, yeah. it could be um, forecasting of things to come, unfortunately. I, I was encouraged to see the increased revenues for rec boating. That was great. And you did attribute this to better efficiencies in the system. There's also a 10% rate increase. I saw that as well. That but, is true. Uh, but the, um, I, I keep on asking, as our occupancy rates go up, the, um, the question of having this uh, subletting of moorage. I understand even our transient moorage was filled this year, which was always the problem, right? As long as you have transient moorage, somebody can't sublet their, their slip, right, when they're gone. So is that something that you see Oops. as a growing potential? So we do allow subletting right now. So, for instance, if you sell your vessel, the new owner can sublet for six months. And people do sublet when they're out for the, um, you know, if they're out for the summer, they typically do sublet. We have not personally got in the middle of that. Um, so, but I will, um, but I think as we, right now, the only time when we do not have, you know, guest moorage is really during peak weekends of the summer. So it's not frequently in. I keep on hearing that Everett does this. And, and so anyway, it's obviously, unless there's a lot of business to do, it's not worth getting in the middle of the management of it. But I always thought that was another chance to get a, a piece of the action. Um, I was curious about the uh, cruise tariffs. So is that only the 5 to 7% new increases? Is that only uh, for weekend? Uh, seven is weekend. Five is weekday. And so previously was there... Um, they're the uh, same. A, a CPI Previously. was there. Was, was is this like? It seems a very steep curve in revenue. Is this the first time we've updated the uh, tariffs in a while? Uh, we have, gosh, we have been increasing. We typically have increased our tariff rates um, anywhere, honestly, between five and fifteen percent over the years. During the heat of the height of the pandemic, we did not, um, and uh, but so the increase for next year does um, increase just the 5 to 7%. And I would say that is um, one thing to note is that we are already uh, by far the highest uh, rates per passenger on the West Coast. So we are really the leader there already, and this will increase that further. It will only apply to our businesses that are operating without a long-term agreement and the long-term agreements will set uh, the tariff, their rates rather, I'm sorry, separately. Right. We are also the most profitable cruise for the cruise industry, correct? Well, I include um, ports in Alaska and Vancouver in, in those rates, but yes. Okay, thanks. And then finally, this category of ship canal fishing and operations is too big a lump. I mean, we, we have the diversity of operations from Fisherman's Terminal to Salmon Bay Marina and the MIG. I mean, to understand how we're doing within that, those three buckets, that's, You'd like that's to see not that a further. single number that we can make sense of. Uh, understand. I mean, we kind of go back and forth between like being super granular and lumping it together. I, I, uh, I personally find each detail totally fascinating. And we had graphs showing how it all split up. But 
just knowing the amount of things that the commission's looking for, looking at, we did kind of um, re uh, lump it together. Sure. Uh, we can absolutely provide those details. I mean, because like obviously, yeah. places that we would help steward, where, which parts need help, which or less. Anyway, yeah. thank you very much. Thank you, Commissioner. And I, I just uh, had a little note to explain who Louis Dreyfus is. Um, not an acronym, but still perhaps a term of uh, that those who aren't in the business wouldn't know, is the operator of our grain terminal and one of the largest grain um, exporters, importers in the world. Commissioner Hasegawa? Um, sure. I'm excited to hear that you've got an allocation for um, understanding human trafficking in the maritime division, which is new. Um, and I'm wondering how you're thinking about it. When I think about human trafficking in maritime, I think of incidents on crews versus incidents on cargo ships versus incidents with fishing fleets coming to dock, maybe patronizing prostitutes. Um, how are staff beginning to think about approaching this? So it's not, it's not new, actually. We have had a program uh, in place that has focused more on our staff and our facilities. So for instance, I will tell you, we've had uh, signs up throughout Maritime in our parks. And one interesting thing I would note is the signs were being torn down. So we know someone saw them and didn't like them. And we, of course, put them back up. So we've had those efforts. Moving forward, our efforts will be, um, I think, much like the airport, going beyond our own staff and looking at customers. So for instance, we, the uh, specific funds for next year would include outreach with cruise lines, which have their own programs around that as and well. Is that for sex trafficking or is that for treatment, of, like um, economic exploitation of you know, international workers? What sort of outreach are you thinking about for cruise lines? Well, it's more focused on um, uh, labor in general mm. than particularly on sex trafficking. Does that also apply for the philosophy for the approach for the fishing industry as well? Because labor trafficking definitely exactly. works there as well. Yeah. Interesting. I'm following. That's, okay. that's really good to hear. Um, and and actually, I think we have a briefing coming up for you at some point, but okay. I will follow up. Okay. Um, where does cold ironing for fishing fleets come into the conversation or in this budget? So our, uh, our fishing fleets currently have the ability to plug in. Okay. I mean, the, the vessels aren't as big, so it's not quite mm -hmm. as uh, hard a job or as splashy as a job. So both at Fisherman's Terminal and at Terminal 91, our fishing fleets can plug in. Where it would show up is in our utilities, both as a, I'm getting this right, both as a revenue, as an expense, because they pay us and then we pay City Light for the electricity. And some of what I've heard among the fishing community is that they, it could be a financial hardship upon them to transform their vessels. And I wonder if the Port of Seattle has any sort of program available for some of these smaller companies that don't have it in their margins to update their equipment. That's a great question. I, I am not, uh, most of the vessels have the ability to plug in when they're at, at our facilities, as I understand it. And uh, when they uh, leave our facilities and they're at sea, um, trans moving to an electric propulsion is something that is a really tough ask for a fishing vessel. Mm -hmm. I know some of the larger fishing companies are thinking about that. Uh, the, the, 
mom and pop folks that are at Fisherman's Terminal that would not be within what they're looking at right now. So I actually, but if there are folks who are um, having trouble actually converting to be able to plug in at the slip, I would want to make that connection and I think our best bet would be to try to connect them with, um, with connect them with uh, places where they could get grants to do that work. Do you think that, oh, okay. Um, do you think that that would live somewhere in the Port of Seattle's economic development budget? I think, yeah, I know that's coming up next in our, in our presentation. Yeah, let me just comment, too, as Commissioner, as we're transitioning. You, you have a very, that's a, uh, you know, our electrification of the waterfront and the, the short-haul uh, fishing vessels. What's the future of those is something that I think we should be thinking about. Um, I don't know if Dave was going to comment, yes. but, but Dave and I, um, you know, we've seen what other countries are doing, particularly what Iceland is thinking about on uh, the, uh, the coastal vessels about the potential of uh, building electrification of them. And so that's an exciting thing to, to go forward. I think uh, you can add to that, Dave. But it's, it, you know, Maritime Blue is thinking about that. But it's a, it's a, it's, we've got to start thinking about that future of what's ahead of, of us down there. So the thing I would add is that um, years ago, Commissioner Albro asked us to look at this question specifically. Could we help capitalize the modernization of the fishing fleet? And we looked into it, and we looked into it in depth, and one of the things we came up against was our state lending of credit prohibition, okay? And that really was a stickler. Um, what we ended up realizing is for us to capitalize the fishing fleet, we would have to own those boats if we were funding them. And so it became a real hardship. And, you know, I think what, what may be worthwhile looking into is I would imagine for like the clean trucks program, we may have captured some federal funding to do that. And maybe there is a similar vein, although if you compare the cost of a truck rehab versus a fishing boat rehab, they're exponentially different. And so the other thing I would impart is just we did a study on fishing fleet modernization and there is expected um, investments. They're making themselves. There are some financial hurdles for them to do it. But one of the biggest things is just the health of the fisheries themselves. The uncertainty, you know, like when we did that study right after that happened, the blob showed up. And that's obviously going to send a signal to both the fishermen that own the boats, but also the financial community that there's a greater risk. And so I'd like to get back with you maybe on more details there, but I did want to share some stories from our previous experience in this arena. Thank you. Commissioner Mohammed. Thank you all for the presentation and for answering those questions. Um, one of my questions is regarding, um, I see that we, for the Green Corridor, there has been a position added, 200000 to support the Green Corridor planning. I'm wondering, are the cruise companies also making a similar investment? Is there like a shared pot of money that's being created? Any updates that you can share around this? So what we, we did not add a new position specifically to support the Green Corridor, actually is my understanding. We have consultant funds and we've added a new position that focuses port-wide, which Sandy could speak to, on emissions, uh, on emissions counting and measuring in general. 
So we, so we, uh, so that's yes. what we have done thus far. I stand corrected. I meant a yes. consultant to yes. support that work and not a not a yeah, yeah. FTE. But we have added a bunch of FTEs focused <laughs> on those issues, though. Uh, so we are have had uh, we are working with the um, with all of the first movers on Green Corridor. Uh, I've had some great meetings talking about um, how we're defining different things, getting the charter in place. We're actually just scheduling um, an in-person meeting to really get the progress on um, getting the, the, the actual technical feasibility studies out the door. So at the moment, we have not discussed how that would be funded. Okay, great. Yep. Well, thank you for that, that update and for that clarification. The other question I had was, um, around Fisherman's Terminal. Do we incorporate any inputs from uh, the fishermen, the men and women that work on uh, that, uh, that terminal, considering they add so much to our local economy? And so I'm just wondering yeah, we actually, what, what oh, the sorry. partnership looks like. <laughs> Go ahead. We have a pretty significant budget ask, actually, which would be in um, not only in our maritime budget, but also in, in uh, our external relations budget for um, working uh, engagement and working with the folks specifically at Fisherman's Terminal as well as tribal communities on um, on uh, our capital programs there. Great. So yes. Wonderful. That's great to hear. Um, and then my last question is I know there's a 1% art program that comes out of the maritime budget. What does that look like, the sort of investments that are being made out of that particular program? Yes, thank you. That's a great question. So uh, our uh, program, it looks a little differently here than it does out at the airport because we have so many different facilities. And um, our desire has been if we're doing, for instance, a capital program at Fisherman's Terminal, we want the art to be there since it's not all one facilities. So we've tried to tie it more directly. So our, the way we have been working with our finance team is we actually, you'll see in the CIP budget, a specific um, art pool, which is not like an art deco pool for us to swim in somewhere. That is a pool of money to be going towards art. So that if projects are big enough to have their own art incorporated, it should be in their budget. But if projects are not, for instance, art isn't conducive to that particular project, it would go into the art pool, which would fund art on the maritime side. Great. That's and we're helpful. working, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. No, we're also working closely with um, the art team, Tommy, uh, on, on that as well. It's not as well developed as I would like, but that's how we are budgeting and we're committed to making it work. We also have to say it's different than uh, it works at the airport just because we're such uh, on maritime and EDD so structured so differently. I see. Great, thank you for that, for sharing that. Um, my last question is around um, Salmon Bay uh, Recreational Marina. What does that look like next to um, Fisherman's Terminal as far as performance goes? Um, and do we have uh, any plans for Uplands development? And maybe that might be a, a question for later, but I'm just curious. Yeah, so we can certainly uh, split out the, the numbers for um, Salmon Bay Marina and, um, and Fisherman's Terminal. One of the things that I will say when we brought it on, I think initially there was thoughts that we might manage it separately as a marina, but uh, have, since Fisherman's Terminal is right there, that the team took on that management as well, and, and I think have done a, a really excellent job. Uh, keeping the customers there happy, because I know they were pretty concerned when the port took over, you know, how is this going to work for them? 
Uh, and so uh, I think that's, but we'll have to get you more specific numbers on how the, Kelly may be able to answer that, how the operations look of the two facilities. Yeah, it's it's slightly better than Fisherman's Terminal, but it's mm -hmm. not um, it's not like where say Shoshone Bay Marina is. It's sort of in between Shoshone Bay Marina and Fisherman's Terminal. If, if you're gauging that on financially speaking, at least, but I can uh, I can get you guys a a breakout of that. Now the costs are always a little tricky because so many of them are allocated, but I will um, I can get you guys a a sort of that would be helpful. Thank you. Thank you for those answers. Um, I guess lastly, my question again is Fisherman's Terminal. I've heard that historically we've subsidized some of that. Is that is that still true? Yes, that that is true. Actually, if you would go back to the maybe slide. Uh, uh, well, actually, slide seven, I think. Yeah, I think that's. And for how long has that been? Well, pretty much. <laughs> as long as I've been at the port. Oh, okay. um, you know, it's, so it's, we have, um, I think if you go back a couple, uh, go forward a couple slides to specifically sh um, Ship Canal, it's like three more slides, one more, right there, nope, there, right there. So um, this shows that the lines with the dots is our revenue and the bar is our expenses. So the green is the direct expense of the folks at Fisherman's Terminal. And you know, we operate that facility, so it takes a number of folks to do that safely, right? Mm -hmm. We have a large staff out there. Uh, additionally, the, the light blue then is kind of, that's maintenance, security, environmental, um, and uh, th those are the main costs that it would be in the, uh, Light blue, probably mostly maintenance at that site, given that we have aging infrastructure. So as you can see, like we, the revenues at that facility do not cover direct and supported expenses there. Mm -hmm. Again, aging facilities takes a number of folks in order to, to run that. And we have kept the rates there um, low to support the fishing fleet. We have not raised them, for instance, like let's, bring yachts in and charge as much as we can, we have purposely kept them at a rate that um, is viable for uh, the fishing fleet. I love that. You don't have to worry about the FAA on the airport side of things. Yeah, exactly. Other people interfering with you. <laughs> um, I guess my last uh, question is um, maybe with slide six, you talked about just staffing. Um, you know, I've met a number of your staff, um, folks that work in maintenance, um, and they're wonderful people. And so, and this might be like an HR sort of question, but I wonder about um, opportunities that your division is creating for pathways for promotion mm -hmm. for folks who work in your, um, within your field. Yes, I love that question. So we have really been focused on internal hiring for, for one thing, and we, uh, so we just recently had a whole bunch of uh, folks moving from um, receiving internal promotions. So mm -hmm. it's something that we try to be very uh, intentional about, um, both in terms of um, thinking about making sure our hiring priorities, our hiring processes are equitable, but also I've committed any time a internal person interviews for a job, they mm -hmm. will, whether if they're not successful, they will get a follow-up 
interview. We have had a practice of, especially in our operations group, posting internally first before we post uh, externally. And then, as I said, we've specifically budgeted uh, training for represented workforce that is focused on equity and employee resource groups. But um, I think that's something that's very important. And if you have feedback that there's something more you think we should or could be doing, I would love to hear that as well. No, that, that's a great answer. Um, I know you're being intentional about equity in your budgeting process and I think creating programs that specifically focus on pathways to promotion internally is, is always good. So thank you. Great. That's, that concludes my questions. All right, I'm going to ask that the presenters uh, proceed. We're about a quarter way through the slide, so I want to make sure we get through everything before this evening. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Um, pleased to be here with you today to give you an overview of our Economic Development Division budget. Um, the thing I'd say right off the top is we're a little different than maritime and aviation. I call us a hybrid division because you'll see we generate revenues from our real estate, our parking, and our conventions, you know, activities and events. But then we um, also manage a significant portion of the port's economic development and community programs. And so you're going to hear both of that, okay, today. And so let's go to the next slide. I just wanted to go from the top and just talk about how we are tied to the Century Agenda, which is quite tight. Um, you know, whether it's through tourism, you know, uh, right off the top, we're trying to drive traffic through the airport and especially since the recovery's been unfolding, generate that out-of-state visitor spend. And I'm going to go more into that in the budget. We're shifting gears a little bit there. But then in terms of uh, advancing equity, as you know, our diversity and contracting department is really one of the lead entities that's promoting, you know, specific steps to address diversity in our supply chain. I'll come back to that as well. I put real estate under a highly effective public agency, but in the century agenda, real estate is really a means to a lot of different things at the port. It can also advance our top goals, you know, as a business gateway. Uh, it is, as I mentioned, a means to the end. And then finally, as I, I just mentioned, we carry a lot of the partnerships and programs um, that join us back with our community. And so I'll, I'll go into more detail there. Let's go to the next slide. And I wanted to just start by just highlighting where we're involved and engaged in equity. And, and one of the things I'm very pleased with is the work we've done to launch this new Community Business Connectors Initiative. We just announced our first connectors, seven of them. They will start work early next year and really provide tremendous outreach and technical assistance to BIPOC businesses throughout the region. We've also added funding to support the growth of the Duwamish Community Partnership. It was our team that really helped lease that facility, support its early staffing, and we are absolutely dedicated to the success of our community hub. Um, it, moving down the list, uh, in Mian's department, we're asking for an FTC, excuse me, FTE staff position to advance both uh, disadvantaged business enterprise and women minority business enterprise compliance and monitoring initiatives. If we look at the progress we've made through diversity and contracting, the areas we haven't really covered well that will have an impact is in the compliance and monitoring arena. 
We also want to uh, complete a disparity study uh, next year. That's going to evaluate how well we've done through diversity and contracting and set a stage for the things we need to do next. And then finally, what I would mention is, yes, we put greater priority on cultural tourism projects. Uh, you helped us when we authorized add a whole bunch of names to our outreach list, and we made more awards this year to support that kind of activity. So in addition to the community program investments I've outlined, um, we, we have division WIMBY utilization goals. We have diverse hiring panels. And we are investing and providing time for our staff to participate in the port's DEI initiatives and programs. So I wanted to just um, give you a flavor of that. And I think next I want to turn it over to Kelly to get into the numbers. Next slide, please. Thanks, Dave. Uh, as Dave mentioned, uh, the division has a mix of revenue generating properties and leases primarily based along the central waterfront along with economic development programs that support the region combined we are looking at a we're looking at an operating loss of 7.9 million which is actually 1.6 million dollars favorable to the 2022 budget as revenue is up 3.4 million and expenses up 1.8 million key drivers are return to the conference and event center volumes increasing equity diversity and inclusion shifting tourism focus to international markets and moving forward on innovation uh, next slide please revenues are anticipated to grow 18 percent conference and event centers plan to return to 2019 levels next year and make a full recovery in 2024. bell street garage is up 48%. However, there is some risk with our office customers. This shows up in our leasing portfolio as well. Next slide, please. Expenses for the division grew 7%, um, primarily from variable costs at the conference and event centers. The transfer of small works expense from maintenance to project management is the main driver in those in those two other uh, variances. Uh, economic development programs are continuing with small increases and um, there's a lower allocation percentage explains why central services are only up 5% versus higher amounts in maritime and aviation. Uh, next slide, please. And this is the overall trend of the division. We are returning to 2019 levels with revenues covering about 80% of operating expenses. Uh, next slide, please. This, sh this slide shows the financial trending of portfolio management, which is the, the main business group in economic development. Their revenues can cover their operating and support services along with part of uh, central services. And uh, Dave will now walk, uh, next slide please. Dave will now walk through the economic development teams in their key areas of focus for 2023. 
then I will finish up finish the operating budget presentation with the overall seaport financial roll-up and then we can go to questions after that if that works. Thank you. Well for our diversity and contracting department it's all about um, advancing women minority business enterprise utilization. Uh, we've been this is the fourth year of our journey to triple the spend uh, on Wimby businesses at the port and triple the number of Wimby businesses we use on an annual basis. We've made a lot of progress um, on that on that march to 15% utilization. Um, we're coming close to that goal and um, we're doing everything we can to try and get there. But even if we hit that goal, it's really a disparity study that shows us whether we have evened out our supply chain and made it more equitable. So we need to really do that, especially as our five-year experiment comes to conclusion, because that'll tell us whether we were successful or whether we need to actually do more. So that is really important work that Mian and his team will do next year. And the only other thing I really want to mention here is an emphasis on workshops and training. Uh, between adding a new Wimby accelerator and advanced port gen uh, classes, we are actually seeing uh, more people uh, in our classes and workshops than we ever have before. And I think that's great um, because we really do need to promote the opportunity and help people understand what it takes to do business and be a partner with the port. So those are my emphasis points from diversity and contracting. Let's go to the next slide. Um, want to talk a little bit about tourism. Uh, I think as you recall we were partnering with Washington State's tourism department to really focus on domestic tourism recovery and if you look at the numbers over the last year that is what we've seen. If you see a lot of folks increasing occupancy in local hotels it's mostly our domestic travelers. International is really still out there. We might see a little little tiny pop there but most of it is still latent and yet we do see um, the potential and the trend that that will bounce. And so what we really want to do is invest in that international tourism recovery initiative. And what we have been doing is sitting down with Visit Seattle and the state of Washington tourism and mapping out how we're going to do that together. I'm so pleased with that because I'm not sure we've really spent the time to compare notes and collaborate and put our resources together. And uh, I see that as a great potential and um, that is one of the significant things we want to advance next year. In addition, we're going to continue um, making investments in local tourism organizations uh, through our tourism grant program, our spotlight advertising program at the airport, with a spendful emphasis on sustainable and cultural tourism events. As I mentioned, we've done, a, I think, a great job expanding a little bit of the opportunity, targeting our investments, and I think they're really important um, to promote that statewide strength in tourism. The final one I want to talk about is this Thursday, I know a couple commissioners are speaking at our Responsible Tourism Summit, and um, there's an interest out, out of that event to really focus on what's next. 
what are we going to talk about that we need to do next? And there was talk in a commission budget request, well, let's do another conference. And all I, all I asked for is some flexibility. Well, maybe it's a conference and something else, or maybe it's something else entirely. And so I gave us some flexibility in the budget to really work with you to figure out what we're going to do to follow up on this great event. And so that's what I wanted to share with you on tourism. Let's go to the next slide. This is the biggest part of the division. It includes the folks managing the properties. It includes Cures Division, our department, doing all our real estate development work. And it also includes a staff that manages our P69 headquarters. So it's all real estate. And the biggest priority I've put at the top is to continue developing our port properties, our capital projects, T91 Uplands, the Maritime Innovation Center. I'll go into more detail here in moments as we get into our CIP. But it also includes redevelopment of 106, T106. Kelly mentioned that'll trigger a big increase in revenue to the port, and it's important that we continue to uh, move that project forward. Along the way, our property managers want to maintain that strong occupancy. I think they've done a fantastic job there. You can see our goal is 95% since I have been here well, seven years. We've never dipped below 90 We've typically maintained about 95%. And yeah, there's a lot of stability in some of our industrial clients, but there's also a lot of turn. And our property managers and team do a really good job of just filling our vacant um, facilities as they can. In addition, we are going to do an aviation real estate strategic plan. Um, that's really to determine what the future needs are outside of SAMP. Um, Kira is leading that effort in cooperation with Jeff Mocum at the airport. And I think, as you also know, we're in close quarters in partnering with Northwest Seaport Alliance to look at some of their real estate needs. Uh, that is a home port responsibility. We've been working with them very hard over the last year. And I'm about ready to bring forward some recommendations to share with you from the work we've done with NWSA. So um, let's keep going. Next slide. Um, my own department is the umbrella for a lot of funding that goes out to the community, both in the new Community Business Connector Initiative, but also through partnerships with cities, chambers, small business development centers, and greater Seattle partners. So a lot of work there. And in addition, we're going to take on some new things next year. We honored the uh, request from a commissioner to support a new small business export initiative in partnership with SBA and Greater Seattle Partners. And we're also going to undertake a public market study um, down in South King County to determine how we might look at recreating a Pike Street market kind of opportunity or destination near the airport. So lots going on there. And in addition to that, we work with Maritime Blue. Uh, that's very exciting. Uh, this, as I mentioned, is an umbrella with a lot of uh, pretty cool stuff under it. So um, with that, let's go to the next slide. We're asking for a couple new positions. Um, Kira's team has gotten stretched. She's doing a lot of work both with NWSA. She's just undertaking a new aviation real estate strategic plan, and she hasn't dropped the ball with all the building projects we have. But um, she only has one support staff. And really, as we look at potential acquisitions or development projects, they're getting more complicated all the time. 
entitlements, environmental concerns and considerations. It actually takes a lot more work today than it did in the past to really consider some of those projects. The other one, as I mentioned earlier, is just a diversity and contracting coordinator that will support efforts to monitor and uh, compliance, monitor and, and support compliance on our projects. So with that, next slide. I think we're done. Thank you. Do you want to? You want me just to finish the roll up real quick here, and then move to questions? Okay. Next, next slide, please. Here is a high-level look at the Seaport operating financials: uh, net operating income or NOI before depreciation, marked uh, by the two yellow highlighted um, items, is remarkably close to 2019. Both revenues and expenses. We're expected to grow, are expected to grow about 16 million over that time horizon. The other item to note is um, highlighted in yellow as well as a $12.9 million in net operating income after depreciation. This serves as a proxy for operational cash flow, however, does not include non-operational expenses such as bond interest payments, environmental remediation expense, and public expense. Operational cash flow is available to pay for capital investments and any new expenses. Anything not paid from operational cash flow, cash flow must rely on the tax levy. Elizabeth Morrison, Director of Corporate Finance, and her team will incorporate this information along with some other factors when they brief you in two weeks on our current funding position and provide initial levy recommendations. And I think that does it with our operating budget. Okay, I think we should go straight into the capital presentations. We can save the next round of questions for after that. Okay. Is that cooperating for you, Aubrey? Yeah. Okay. So I'll go through this, but Dave and Stephanie will uh, be interjecting quite a bit on <laughs> on some of the projects that they're a little more familiar with than I am. Okay, so we're, okay, we're now going to go through our Capital Improvement Plan, or CIP. I'll move swiftly through the slides to leave time for questions. Uh, next slide, please. This slide focuses on leadership priorities. First is managing the post-pandemic reality of construction cost increases and staff shortages. Second is implementing improvements that can help accelerate process delivery, project delivery, pardon me. And third is to find opportunities to integrate and expand the sustainable evaluation framework into the CIP process. Next slide, please. Here is the CIP timeline. We provided a preview of what we are planning this past August, and you'll see this draft CIP we are proposing is, is in line with that. The next slide, please. The, the CIP is prioritized based on financial sustainability, either developing new revenue streams or maintaining existing ones, a community and environment, and asset stewardship, which represents about half of our forecasted capital spending. Next slide, please. Uh, we've shown you the slide before. Given the unique nature of most of our projects, until they get to about three quarters of the way through commission authorized design status. Um, you can see on the dotted yellow line there, there is a higher degree of uncertainty around cost and schedule delivery. 
Uh, next slide, please. Uh, we are planning to, to deliver about $522 million in capital projects for the Port of Seattle through 2027. In addition, the Waterfront Project Management Team will be delivering a roughly equivalent dollar amount of projects for the Northwest Seaport Alliance. Next slide, please. This is a breakdown of capital spend by Port of Seattle businesses. Um, portfolio management with Terminal 91 Uplands and Maritime Innovation Center, along with Fishing and Commercial, which is delivering both Terminal 91 Berth 6 and 8, as well as Fisherman's Terminal Northwest Dock, account for the bulk of the spend. Cruise is primarily driven by shore power at Pier 66. Uh, next slide, please. This is a detailed breakdown of our, the CIP. We presented something similar in August retreat and incorporated any significant changes in cost estimates in the upper right-hand corner. You can see Terminal 91 Uplands cost went up as there is more utility work required than originally planned and the size of the Phase 1 building is also increased. We list the top mid-cap projects in slide 15. Okay. Next slide, please. And one more, I guess. The next, the next four slides will we will be delivering, um, and where we are in some of the port's key projects. Uh, you want to? You, you bet. So, uh, terminal line runs both six and eight. You can actually see in the photo. It's the last wooden, uh, wooden, berths at ninety-one. So being updated to. Um, uh, thanks. Being up, up, uh, upgraded to to uh, to modern technology, uh, we're in the process of uh, the design right now. Hopefully, Q1 of next quarter, the design will be complete, uh, and we will be complete with the construction uh, in the middle of 2025. That berth will have shore power, as you've asked about. Will also be our first berth out there that has the ability to connect directly to the sewer system which I think is pretty cool. So this will expand, uh, uh, expand our ability to handle uh, the, the new generation of fishing vessels that are coming online. Next slide. On our terminal, on our Terminal 91 Uplands project, as Kelly mentioned, um, we're making progress. We're at about 15% design. Uh, the budget has increased because we increased the size of the uh, program. We went from 100 to 120,000 square feet. And really, to be precise, we we looked at phase two and we moved some of the square footage from our long-term plan in our into our current, um, partly because the site supports it, there's strong demand from potential maritime tenants, um, but also in that number is an increased investment in utility infrastructure. We learned we couldn't really tap into a city um, utility, and so we have to upgrade our own utilities, but our long-term plan is really to upgrade facility to infrastructure that will both support phase one and also our second phase of development at Terminal 91 Uplands. So we're on track to complete this project by the end of 2025. Next slide. 
Oh, and that's me too. And uh, I think the update here is I think we are completed design. We're basically hovering around 100% design on the Maritime Innovation Center. We have discovered a little hiccup that will probably delay the project a few months, but um, we're generally keeping on cost and schedule with an anticipated completion date in 2025. Um, to address, you know, back on the previous slide or this slide, both of these projects include some significant sustainability investments or planned sustainability investments. The Maritime Innovation Center will meet a living building challenge sustainability objective, and right now the plans are for a LEED certification at T91. Next slide, please. So shore power provision to Pier 66 is one of our um, projects that's currently in design. Uh, it's really gotten caught up in the challenges of our supply chain between uh, electrical equipment is especially challenging these days. So the underwater cable, uh, as well as the different equipment. So we are, uh, we've, we've actually uh, have the, the cable and equipment uh, purchase in process. Uh, the design should be complete first quarter of next year, and we'll be uh, moving forward to get that in place for the 2024 cruise season. Uh, oh, next slide. Oh. That's back to me. Um, we are working on access improvements uh, between the CEM property and T5. This has really been driven by conversations with the Northwest Seaport Alliance with some of the challenges of supply, the need for space near the terminals. CEM, if we could provide heavy uh, access to, would really be much more uh, versatile and valuable to the NWSA. Prior to having those discussions, we were thinking of just going on a ground lease for CEM and bringing small trucks in via Harbor Avenue. We've changed, okay? And so now we're looking at really uh, building a new internal roadway on our properties that would come out to Spokane Street and again provide new access that we think is very valuable to NWSA. Um, I do have, I know there's a question behind this, but I'll wait for it. Uh, so I've done some homework on the ROI on that and I'm prepared to respond to that question when it comes. So back to Stephanie on the other ones. You don't want me to let them wait for your question? <laughs> the payback is about 10 and a half years based on our analysis so far. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Uh, so a couple other new projects here. The, the, the middle one is uh, renewal and replacement just as we uh, replace that last uh, last berth, wooden berth at 91, then we need to, on Pier 90, we need to go back and kind of start replacing pile caps and deck panel refurbishing on the other uh, berths, uh, not a, a standard renewal and replacement. It's still $21 million. And then some improvements to uh, shoreline stabilization at Centennial Park shoreline for $8 million. Next slide, please. Uh, this slide shows for both Maritime and EDD what we call our mid-cap projects. So these are projects that are ranging from 2.5 to 8.7 million. There's quite a number of them. Most of these are renewal and replacement, but quite a number of them in the um, in the capital plan, one thing I will say is you'll notice about our, our, we have record capital spending projected, but there's no 
marquee projects like an IAF or a new container facility. It's made up of a, lo of a lot of, you know, pretty large and mid-cap projects. And that is, uh, it's a, small projects don't necessarily take less work to deliver than large projects. So we really are looking at a need to make sure we have, as you saw in our expense budget, that the organization has the, the resources to, to do this level of project delivery, even for the small projects that don't get a lot of attention. Unless there's something, a specific question about these, we'll keep moving. Uh, and this slide talks about projects that, um, given the size of our capital program and the size of the Northwest Seaport Alliance pro program, we um, do not have these projects funded right now. And I will speak to the second bullet and then turn it back to Dave to speak to the first one. The north face of Terminal 46 is a Port of Seattle facility. Replacing that structure, which would be kind of a similar project to Burst 6 and 8, would really serve especially probably larger fishing vessels, uh, maybe research vessels, ships of state, et cetera. Uh, right now, that project, it's about $75 million. We, have, we do not have that funded, um, and that project is in its very early stages anyway, really more planning than design, but it is not funded in the current capital program. And on 291 Uplands Phase 2, it we're really learning a lot as we do the Phase 1 design, and uh, so we want to learn more as we actually deliver that project before we just completely um, barrel into Phase 2. And the other thing that's obvious is that the capital available for that is a little uncertain. So the bottom line is we're going to have to evaluate our path forward at the T91. And uh, the bottom half of this slide is additionally other projects that are, are interesting, and then we are, but they are not ready to move forward and not funded in our current plan. And as we move through our five-year plan, um, hopefully they will be added in the future. Next slide. Yeah, and I do want to note on those those ones that we didn't fund. They are um, in our perspective list to potentially, you know, when more funding and capacity come along, we will, you know, we've noted them and put a stake in the ground on them for future years. Um, this slide, this slide outlines the challenges of future funding. Uh, information is still preliminary. And again, on that October 25th plan of finance briefing, um, you'll be provided with more comprehensive um, funding picture on that. And I guess that this actually completes the, the briefing right now. All right, I'm going to open it up for commissioner questions and comments. Go ahead, Commissioner Fellman. <clears throat> Thanks again. Really appreciate all things aquatic here today. Um, and CIP Aquatic, right. I, uh, I had a couple of uh, an economic development. I don't want to miss that. Uh, the, um, the increase to $32 million for Shore Pirate uh, 66 is a little daunting and underscores my um, ongoing request that how are we sharing this cost with NCL. And uh, is there, I didn't see anything on the revenue side on, on that cost share. Do, can you remind me how we're, as this budget increases, how we are continuing to look to share that cost? 
Yeah, so we've had uh, discussions with NCL about that. Uh, we don't have specific agreements yet. I think they are also interested in talking at the same time about how, uh, about our current lease. And so I would uh, be interested in discussing that further with the commission and understanding, because I would also see with uh, the increase in costs, uh, we had initially talked about uh, uh, at, uh, even split of the previous cost estimate. So I think uh, understanding uh, where you are will all be important as well. I assume this would have some implications on previous discussions. So we would like to definitely stay in touch with how how that uh, continues. I would also be interested to see um, sort of like the cruise revenues are up, but the the cruise season is extending as are the number of days in the week. I mean, that would be kind of a valuable uh, projection as we see. And your incentivization of trying to get people into the weekday instead of just all shouldering on the weekends. But, but over time, this has been a, you know, you can see the bell curve grow both by month as well as by day of the week. And I think that would be an interesting, you know, in terms of trend, not just numbers of passengers. Mm -hmm. It would be mm -hmm. kind of insightful for, uh, especially when in terms of like bike path mitigation and all these other things that we're trying to do, it would be, and if it varies considerably between our three births, that would be uh, just informative. I, 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 didn't, I couldn't help but mention that you know, your goal for internal hire, I mean, just look at yourself. And if, if, there, isn't, if there isn't that, the ultimate uh, example is uh, Lindsay Pulsiver. Someday you got to tell the Lindsay Pulsiver story. I just think it's extraordinary. I think she started off with truck driving and ended up running the division. I, I just thought she should be proud of that. And getting to um, uh, the, the real estate side of things, um, the, when looking at the CEM access, which is something I've been very actively in support of for a long time, uh, it's also become apparent to me that I, I, since I got here, I've been trying to see about collaborating with Nucor on waste heat. And I know that they have a facility on the East Coast that does make use of their waste heat. And you, know, you can get a sunburn walking past it. And the, um, when I approached them like twice in the term I'm here, they said, well, we'd love to do it and we know how to do it, but the economics doesn't work out for us here. Well, that's pre climate commitment act and such so I, I'd like us to make another run at that and when we're looking at creating right-of-ways easements to this property whether or not there needs to be cabling or something associated with that I'd like us to uh, view that and I, I've also been made aware that the property sits and, and, and you can, actually we saw it in the terms of the T5 lease you can actually see the garbage dump like extends under the tracks to T5 which is one of the reasons we're having subsidence on the tracks at T5. But the um, underneath there someplace along that right of way is the outfall for the rent and sewage treatment plant, the treated outfall. And, um, and so if we have waste heat and waste water uh, in proximity to a terminal that needs hydrogen in the future or some such alternative fuel sources, it may be, again, when we're looking at an in-depth study of something of this sort, keeping in mind that it may not just be for truck parking, although I think it's good. I, I just would like us to look at the uh, broader potential uses of that. And just real quick, ending up on tourism. Um, I think uh, I'm very excited about tomorrow's Wednesday's event. No, it's Thursday's event. Tomorrow is the State Tourism Conference, 
Thursday is our Responsible Outdoor Tourism Summit that Commissioner Hasegawa and I are happy to be uh, presenting at and that it's been a little bit more than just speaking at. It's been a tro for the past year. I've been working very closely with Mr. Blanford at the Washington State Tourism and I must say it's been a great help to have uh, my staff, David Yeworth, and when Nick Leonetti came online, it's been a real boost in getting this over the line. And I think it's going to be a great conference. And uh, and I agree with David uh, in, that how we go forward into the future, we're waiting for feedback on this. But one, a couple of things we already know is that it's logistically challenging to have two different venues, two different conferences. And we know that um, the state of Washington Tourism wants to do their things regionally around the state in the future, their conferences. So um, I'm suggesting with David Blanford that oftentimes when you go to a conference, you have like workshops attached to the conference. So you have the same mailing, you have this, an added day prior or later. Um, and so these would be the regional ROTS roundtables, the, the R cubes. Anyway, that's the idea though, that we can highlight those recreational responsible activities that are occurring in those regions. This is just, we haven't gotten the public's feedback yet, but in the evolution of trying to consolidate all this energy, David has taken on the lion's share of the logistics, but the substance has been really quite a jointly shared undertaking. And moving forward with our, um, going forward with this collaboration between the state and Visit Seattle, it's really kind of an exciting opportunity that there's all these new staff. So there's really kind of an opportunity to really identify our lanes and how best to collaborate with our talents. And I would love, because we talked about this beforehand, but there's like a whole new deck of cards out there, which I think is a great opportunity to really see how best to leverage our natural resources and talents. And so I, I would love to see if we could have some sort of game plan moving forward, both not just in the international arena, but in the domestic marketing too. And the cultural tourism is a great part of our ROTS conference, trying to get the tribal governments involved with this effort. But clearly we're just beginning figuring out how to steward the natural resources for sustainable economic development as well. So thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Feldman. Any other questions? Thank you. All right, well, thank you so much for the presentation. <laughs> this time, Clark Hart, can you read <laughs> the next item into the record? Yes, this is agenda item 11B, Underwater Noise Mitigation and Management Plan. Commissioners, the port, is, the port is committed to reducing the adverse effects of underwater noise on marine mammals and other sensitive species. The Underwater Noise Mitigation and Management Plan describes the port's approach to this issue in a manner where commerce, communities, and killer whales can coexist. The presenters include uh, Sarah Auger, Director of Maritime Environment and Sustainability, and Daniel, Danielle uh, Bustic, uh, Senior Environmental Management Specialist. And so I'm going to turn it over to you, Sarah. I see you on the screen. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Director Metric, and uh, thank you, Commission, for the opportunity to present to you today. Uh, the planning work we're going to speak to you today began about we're going to speak to you about today began in late 2021 and we're pleased to present the final plan to you today. Uh, this plan reflects the Port of Seattle's ongoing commitment to reducing impacts from underwater noise on the southern resident killer whales in Puget Sound. Uh, to ensure we continue to improve and challenge ourselves in this arena, we have sought out third-party certification through the Green Marine Program. 
Um, you might recall the Green Marine uh, name. The port has been an active member of Green Marine as the first West Coast port to join. We're proud of that. We also have staff who serve on the board of directors and have a membership in the West Coast Advisory Committee for Green Marine. And just as Green Marine routinely updates their standards to drive greater achievement among their participants, the port is also committed to continuous improvement in this area. So thus, this plan is a starting point and consistent with our value of excellence through continuous improvement, we will improve the plan as we learn more and identify opportunities to advance the science and practice of underwater noise mitigation and management. And with that, I'd like to hand it over to Danielle Butzik, who's going to uh, tell you more about the plan itself. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you, commissioners. Again, I'm Danielle Butzik. I'm a senior environmental management specialist in maritime environment sustainability. And today I want to present to you um, the draft underwater noise mitigation and management plan, which we developed this year as part of our um, efforts to document progress toward our environmental goals and, um, and to increase our certification level in Green Marine, as Sarah mentioned. I, I really want to recognize that this plan is really the, the result of a lot of contributions from a lot of uh, different partners and collaborators and just a lot of uh, really smart people. Um, I had a great consultant team supporting this plan development, Sasha Ertl at Gretti Associates and Janice Gedland at Cogent Environmental um, were really instrumental in pulling this together. Um, I got support from Green Marine staff just on the uh, planned content and um, Northwest Seaport Alliance environmental staff guidance on what uh, what their underwater noise efforts look like. Um, Quiet Sound Leadership Committee contributed a lot. We had a lot of um, individual um, internal staff contributions from the sustainability program, maritime operations, property management, um, Natural Resources Defense Council, Washington State Ferries, Marine Exchange, just a lot of folks helped out with this plan. So I really wanna just call attention to that. Next slide, please. So it's really important to remember first why the port and its green marine partners are focused on the issue of underwater noise. Underwater noise is a major concern for one of our most iconic species in the Puget Sound, the Southern resident killer whale. Um, underwater noise is actually in the top three concerns along with prey avail availability and pollution. And uh, underwater noise can also impact other sensitive species like you see here on this slide. And when we focus on reducing underwater noise um, to benefit killer whales, all those other species also benefit. Next slide, please. In-water construction and vessel traffic are really the main sources of um, port-related underwater noise. Facility operations can also contribute noise, but um, whether and how much this actually impacts sensitive species is kind of less well-documented. Um, and it's also important to note that the Port of Seattle is different from its Canadian partners in Green Marine in that as primarily a landlord port, we don't have direct control or regulatory authority over a lot of port-related operations, including shipping. Um, our cargo operations are managed by the Northwest Seaport Alliance, which actually has its own Green Marine membership and certification process. So this underwater noise plan focuses on things that we have direct control over and really emphasizes collaboration and coordination as a way to direct our port resources to help influence those things that we don't have direct control over. Um, for example, the port's participation in Quiet Sound 
is included as an action in this plan, among many other actions um, that the port is undertaking. And Quiet Sound is is an example of an initiative that we collaborate with others on, but we don't have direct control over it. Um, so. Uh, this this work is part of our organizational DNA. You know, our mandate in the Century Agenda is to ensure that international trade and economic development goals are achieved sustainably, and so that we can continue to ensure the vitality of the environment in which we operate. So, for the past few years, the court has really been doing a lot to help advance the science and best practices um, and economic and um, and policy around underwater noise. Um, this plan is a way for, for us to really sort of systematically inventory those actions and those activities and document them in one place. And then it also gives us uh, an opportunity to take a step back and look at what more we could be doing and set goals for the next couple of years. And then um, certification through Green Marine by, uh, you know, as Sarah said, an independent verification process is how we uh, how we track and how we measure progress toward our environmental goals and really keep ourselves accountable as an organization. Next slide, please. So as I said, Green Marine is a voluntary environmental certification program um, for the it's focused on the maritime industry um, and it's led by Canada and the US um, certification through the independent verification process is really how we publicly demonstrate our commitments and how we, um, again, measure progress and hold ourselves accountable. The underwater noise performance indicator is the only performance indicator for which we haven't actually achieved the highest level of certification. So um, as you can see on this scoreboard, we really show leadership in a lot of categories, um, including underwater noise. It's really important to note that just being on the board is demonstrating leadership um, and and also, it's important to note that the underwater noise performance indicator didn't even start until 2017 um, as, as one of the factors considered by uh, Green Marine. Um, and in 2017, it was optional, but yet we were on the board. And uh, you do have to do a lot even to be in um, a one on the on the scoreboard. And then, you know, for a two, you have to do more. And uh, it's it's sort of progressive in that way. Um, so each each criteria or each score that you uh, that you increase takes um, takes a lot of effort. So this underwater noise mitigation and management plan is the critical next step for us to achieve the next highest level of certification in the underwater noise performance indicator and uh, and really help us document our work toward um, underwater noise outcomes. Next slide, please. So this slide shows the tools or the levers that we describe in the plan, which the port can use to influence underwater noise um, action and policy, even though um, our control over some of the maritime operations is um, more limited than some of our sister ports, as I mentioned. Um, these tools really focus on using the port's influence and relationships to improve underwater noise outcomes in Puget Sound. Next slide, please. So broadly, these categories on the slide you see describe the types of actions that the port can take using the unique set of tools we have available, which were on the last slide. Um, all of the actions and recommendations in the plan fall into one of these categories, and they make use of 
one of the tools shown, one or more of the tools shown on the last slide, and which are um, leadership in environmentally responsible stewardship of marine facilities, advocacy for sound policy and regulations and practices related to underwater noise, financial investments and studies to advance scientific knowledge, and partnerships with industry, government agencies, tribes, and nonprofits. Next slide, please. Each category has a section for complete or ongoing efforts and then opportunities for 2023-2024. Uh, for a lot of our recent work has, um, has really centered on underwater noise studies. So I've chosen in this presentation to highlight this category. Um, the plan provides uh, detail on each category and the specific actions or opportunities that we've identified. Um, but underwater noise studies are just really a part, uh, a big part of our underwater noise work right now. Um, and it's uh, part of that is focused on um, collecting data and establishing a baseline against which in the future we can set noise reduction targets. Um, so I want to just really quickly play this video to highlight the work that we're doing on underwater noise studies and uh, as well as the um, support that we have from port leadership. Uh, this is our opinion, Deputy Commission Clerk. I'm just going to take down the video for a second, let it buffer, and then I'll start it. Thank you. The Port of Seattle is a contributor to environmental causes and today we've been working on an underwater noise mitigation and management plan to try to reduce underwater noise within Puget Sound. The port has been part of seeking Green Marine certification for some time and this is just again this elevated awareness of the importance of noise in the consideration of what's green in the marine. Things that the port is now you know addressing First, knowing what the background is, and that's what today's study starts with. So we just deployed a hydrophone, and uh, that's just an underwater microphone that will record any sound within a certain kilohertz level. We have various industry um, sources of noise here, and of course ferries, cruise ships, pleasure boats. We have a lot of activities that go on in the water. Once we know what the baseline is, we can then also address how to reduce those impacts that we know we have. I studied killer whales for my graduate work at the UW. There used to be sail, moving cargo, and before that, canoes. So this is a relatively early advent of the, for the whales who've been around tens of millions of years. All of a sudden, they have to adapt to this industrialization of the waterway. This is a blink in the eye for an animal that's been adapted to a completely different environment. It's important to recognize that there's an adaptation that's needing to occur that's much faster than normally you would expect, you know, evolution to do. And obviously these animals are very much 
audio dependent using echolocation to find fish. So the question really is, what can we do about it? Cruise ships can, if they can plug into shore power, then they're able to shut their generators off and that may reduce the underwater noise footprint. There are things that the port is already looking at with regards to pile driving, looking at ways to put like a sleeve around the, the piling that you're punching back in. So the noise is just contained within that second hole. And the other one is bubble netting. The bubbles keep the noise from bouncing out the region. One of the things you can do with any vessel to reduce noise is to slow down. We are now just beginning an exploration on interacting with the vessels through the Quiet Sound program, trying to reduce a vessel speed through a small portion of the sound at first, hopefully starting next year. Every knot or nautical mile an hour, you can reduce the noise by a decibel. See, what's amazing is that the fact that people are even worrying about measuring noise, that awareness is critical. So again, these are um, uh, these items listed on this slide here are just a couple of the efforts that the port has already undertaken that are either complete or done as of 2022, um, including measuring underwater noise levels during a dredge operation at Terminal 5. We're also studying um, underwater noise uh, monitoring network. So, um, so we're doing a desktop study is what we're calling it on the hydrophone network and looking at what kinds of technology is being used, what kinds of software is being used to analyze underwater noise. Um, we launched an ambient noise assessment program this year to collect baseline underwater noise data in Elliott Bay. Um, and then we also, as we've mentioned a couple of times in this presentation, um, there is uh, a quiet sound um, monitoring whales and vessel noise working group, as well as um, other working groups in quiet sound that the port is uh, participating in actively. Next slide, please. We've also identified opportunities in uh, in the coming years. Um, you know, having having this plan and being able to inventory all of the things that we're doing now, it kind of gives us an opportunity to look at what we what more we could be doing in the future. And um, an example of some of the opportunities that we've identified is the study that the port is funding um, with that is being led by UW and NOAA. Um, we're funding that study for two hundred thousand dollars and whatever funds are left over. We have committed to actually purchasing hydrophone equipment with that with those leftover funds. Um, that could potentially uh, support future data collection to measure background noise levels and track progress uh, toward meeting those goals. So um, we have a lot of cool uh, recommendations for what we could be doing in the future. And again, this is just one of the categories of types of actions that, um, that we'd like to undertake in the future and that we're already working on toward underwater noise outcomes. Next slide, please. We've also recommended a maintenance strategy to, for the plan to make sure that it remains relevant um, and that we do continue to push ourselves toward um, you know, ever harder environmental goals. We've proposed a biannual review and update of the plan and we've also um, really just highlighted how important it is to include the actions listed in this plan in, in our department's budget request, which is a very um, you know, apt timing for this presentation after hearing about all of the you know, budgeting for, uh, for our work in the coming year. Um, a key recommendation in the plan is that we uh, that it continue to evolve. 
to incorporate noise reduction targets um, eventually, and then continue the ambient data, the ambient noise data collection program to actually tra track our progress toward um, achieving those goals. Getting to a level five certification in Green Marine actually requires us to show progress toward our goals. And that's gonna require us to, uh, to develop a scope of work and a study plan and really build it into our, our budget requests to make progress on that. Next slide, please. Thank you for your time. And uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions you have for me. All right, Commissioner Film, do you have any questions? I just want to say thanks for the work and uh, Kathy for producing that video and I was hoping you would have edited it down a little bit for this presentation but it was a little embarrassing. Thank you very much and uh, executive metric you're gonna I'm gonna have to copyright that saying but uh, commerce killer whales and communities coexisting that that much is mine. So anyway I, I just wrote it in the press release I know it's mine so anyway thank you so much. <laughs> Any other questions? Um, thank you to all the staff who worked hard on this for your leadership, um, as well as Commissioner Feldman for all your hard work on um, on this work. Um, my question was, what does the partnership look like with the Northwest Seaport Alliance side? Because I know that they're making a lot of investment um, on underwater noise mitigation. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a really good question, and it is still um, it's it's kind of um, it's kind of a tricky question because the alliance has helped us out with um, just kind of understanding how their leases work and if there are opportunities for us to build in um, language in their leases to promote um, best practices around underwater noise. At this time, um, the alliance does have their own certification under Green Marine and. Um, their staff is excited about the idea of an underwater noise mitigation and management plan, but there are there aren't any formal plans to move forward with that. Um, that being said, we do of course uh, work with them on uh, quiet sound, which is an, an action that's listed in this plan, and it's um, it's one of the things. It's one of the many things that we're doing um, at, at the home port, Port of Seattle, related to underwater noise. I'm sure Commissioner Feldman is probably paying attention to this closely, but I would imagine we wouldn't want to have any sort of duplicacies and where we, sh where there's opportunities to collaborate, we should work hard on that. Um, the other question that I had is how do we compare to other ports um, with their underwater noise mitigation programs? We're, one, we're actually one of the first ports in uh, the U.S. to have an underwater noise mitigation and management plan. Um, this is, it is a, it's a new performance indicator in Green Marine. And so it's something that not a lot of ports have, um, have, has, have taken on yet. I think that, um, as has been the case with a lot of the Green Marine performance indicators, there will be, um, you know, a continued effort toward that. And I think we'll see more ports adopting these plans. There are a couple of them out there. Um, Port Everglades has one. And um, the in Canada, the uh, Vancouver Fraser um, Port Authority does have an underwater noise mitigation and management plan, um, but there they're not there aren't a lot out there. Um, and so this is you know another way that the Port of Seattle is showing leadership. And uh, again, I think that um, Green Marine is a really great program in that 
you know, once once everyone has started to achieve those uh, those milestones and the um, you know the higher scores in performance indicators, it gets harder and harder because uh, you know we want to really push to do better. Thank you for that thorough answer. I appreciate it. That concludes my questions. All right, and uh, Executive Director Metric, I know you have some comments too. Thanks, Commissioner. And Commissioner Feldman, thank you. And I should have actually, in the future, I will attribute that <laughs> because, as I said, when they take, we stole liberally from uh, from the press release and, and your comments on that. But, but it, it is, uh, I note that. But uh, thanks for all your your leadership in this regard. But, uh, and also want to say is that we don't just seek the green green, um, the higher levels of uh, with that just because that's the goal. The goal is to do the right thing. And as a result, we achieve these other levels. So I appreciate, appreciate that and in, in, uh, just as we approach that, that's, that's our approach as well. It's not, we just want to achieve it, but it's the outcome that then achieves the level. So and I appreciate all the work from the, the staff on this. All right, well, thank you, Danielle, and thank you, Sarah, for the presentation. We really appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Clerk Hart, can you, um, Read into the record the final item for the day. Of course, this is item 11C, the 2022 Port of Seattle Affirmative Action Program briefing. Commissioners, our last presentation, it will cover the results of tracking our employment demographics against the availability of qualified men and people of color in our region. While we have made some progress in the utilization of veterans and people with disabilities, you'll see we still have work to do in other areas and to achieve our ambitious goals for diversity and equity. You probably recall we received a report earlier in the year because of the different things, so that's why we're actually getting two uh, this year, and then we'll get back up, uh, back on speed on the routine going forward. So the presenters are today Cynthia Alvarez, Senior Manager, Employee Relations uh, from HR, and Sanders Mayo, Senior Employee Relations Consultant from HR as well. So Cynthia, I believe I'm turning it over to you. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm happy to be here with Sanders Mayo to provide you uh, a briefing on the Port's 2022 Affirmative Action Program. Next slide, please. As a federal contractor, the Port of Seattle is required to create three annual affirmative action plans, one for women and minorities, one for individuals with disabilities, and one for VEVRA protected veterans. During this affirmative action presentation, Sanders and I will reference the port's BIPOC employees as minorities. I want to acknowledge upfront that this is outdated language and to explain that we do so in this context to remain consistent with federal affirmative action reporting requirements. Also to remain consistent with federal affirmative action reporting requirements, we look at availability and utilization data for minorities which is not disaggregated by race. The purpose of the three affirmative action plans is to show the port's good faith efforts to recruit, hire, and retain qualified women, minorities, people of uh, individuals with disabilities and VEVRA protected veterans, as well as to ensure that the representation of these groups meets the standards set out by the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, OFCCP. Next slide, please. Looking at our 2022 Affirmative Action Program highlights, we resolved the underutilization of women in the Professionals 2 EEO job group from our 2021 Affirmative Action Plan for Women and Minorities. 
in our 2022 plan, we have no underutilization of minorities in any of our 17 EEO job groups. For women, 15 out of the 17 EEO job groups have no underutilizations. However, the technicians and non-commissioned protective services command EEO job groups have underutilizations for women. I'll go in the, into this in more detail in a few slides. Our 2022 EEO comp analysis showed salary difference of, differences of more than 7.5% amongst some employees holding the same job title. These differences impact employees regardless of race or gender. HR is working to finalize the pay equity methodology, and once that's finalized, we'll conduct the pay equity analysis, followed by the development of a plan for remediation of the discrepancies identified. Looking at other program highlights, we rolled out discrimination-free workplace training for managers in July. Additionally, HR's talent acquisition and emerging talent team began including a statement, excuse me, HR's talent acquisition team began including a statement on equity, diversity, and inclusion and port values in all port job postings, and now includes a, an equity, diversity, and inclusion question in all job interviews. Next slide, please. Moving to our affirmative action plan for individuals with disabilities, OFCCP sets an aspirational goal of 7% for the representation of individuals with disabilities within each EEO job group. 12 out of our 17 EEO job groups align with the 7% aspirational goal, an increase from 11 last year. The overall representation of employees with disabilities across the port grew from just over 6.5% in our 2021 plan to almost 8% in our 2022 plan. Now looking at our affirmative action plan for VEVRA protected veterans, OFCCP sets a 5.6% benchmark for the representation of VEVRA protected veterans, again within each EEO job group. 15 of the port's 17 EEO job groups meet or exceed the 5.6% 5, 5 benchmark, which is consistent with our representation in our 2021 plan. The overall representation of port employees who have self-identified as VEVRA protected veterans is 9.5%, which is the same as last year. Next slide, please. So this slide looks further at the underrepresentation or underutilization of women that we have in the technicians and the non-commissioned protective services command EEO job groups. We have underutilizations because the number of women within these two job groups is less than would be reasonably expected given their availability, both internal and external. As you can see from the 2020 versus 2021 data, Availability for women in both EEO job groups increased while the representation of women remained the same in the non-commissioned protective services command and decreased by two in the technician's uh, job group. To address and resolve these underutilizations, we are partnering with our colleagues in talent acquisition and emerging talent to identify postings for positions within both of these job groups for targeted outreach and recruitment of women to ensure that we have diverse applicant pools. These same actions led us to successfully resolve the 2021 underutilization of women in the professionals too, 
EEO Job Group. And now I'm going to turn it all over to Sanders. Next slide, please. Good afternoon, I'm Sanders Mayo, one of the ports of CE Employee Relations Consultants. And uh, for my portion of the presentation, I'll be talking through some of the demographics. Um, it's important to remember that as we go through the demographics, demographics, uh, this differs from availability because uh, as we go through this process, we'll be comparing um, overall representation from uh, various counties to uh, the ports uh, a demographic breakdown. And the county's uh, demographic breakdowns includes everyone from newborns to the elderly. So it's important that we understand that uh, unlike uh, utila availability, uh, these demographics are not just focused on individuals that are qualified for the different EEO job groups. So next slide, please. Um, as we look at this, this uh, this slide here represents uh, gender and, and within the different pay grades. Uh, this is focused on non-represented employees. And as you can see, our female representation is the baseline there. We currently have 46%. Um, and as you can see, we uh, in our lower uh, pay grades of grades 15 through 19 and grades 20 through 24, we have over-representation. And as we move through to the uh, uh, mid-grades as well as to the higher grades, it appears that using that as a baseline, there would be what we would categorize an under-representation in comparison to that 46% for non-represented employees. Next slide, please. Um, this represents uh, race within the different pay grades. And again, using the baseline of 36%, which is the representation of minorities uh, of not in our non-represented uh, groups. Uh, again, we'll see that in the lower grades, we have uh, over-representation at grades 15 through 19, a slight over-representation in grades 20 through 24, a slight under-representation in grades 25 through 29, and uh, under-representation in grades 30 uh, through 35. Next slide, please. Um, now we're talking about the demographics in terms of comparison uh, to the different counties. So the ports demographic uh, versus the different counties that we consider uh, recruiting uh, areas, uh, King, Pierce, Snohomish, um, our, our largest three. Um, there, there's also Kitsap as well. Um, when we look at that comparison, we see that um, our female, the port's female representation overall is 34%. This includes represented and non-represented. And in our male group, we have 66%. Um, in comparison to King County's 49% uh, female, 51% uh, male, Pierce County, uh, an even split of 50-50, and Shinohomish County, 50% male, female, and 51% female. Um, lower uh, below, we'll see that, um, again, uh, minority representation versus uh, white representation at the port. 60, the port is 65% white compared to 35% uh, minority or BIPOC. Um, Within King County, 55, 54% uh, in comparison to 46%, 62% uh, compared to 38% in Snohomish, 64% uh, and 36%. So the Port of Seattle is uh, a similar parity for two of the two of the counties listed here, whereas uh, there's still opportunity there. Um, next slide, please. Oh, back to you, Cynthia. Opportunities moving forward. Thank you, Sanders. So looking at our opportunities moving forward, uh, talent acquisition and emerging talent will continue to conduct targeted outreach and recruitment for women in the technicians and non-commission protective services. Workplace responsibility and employee relations will complete the process improvement work that's currently underway. 
we will be refreshing the ports, uh, the port-wide EEO compliance trainings in consultation with our ERGs and the D&D Council to ensure that we, may re we remain current uh, with applicable laws. We will continue to update HR and code of conduct policies to include review of the policies using an equity lens. And uh, I'm happy to report that next week we will begin onboarding our new affirmative action program manager, George Ginnikakis. This is a new position which will allow the port to better meet its federal affirmative action reporting requirements. All right, so thank you for your time. Are there any questions? Oh, Commissioners, please. any questions? Commissioner Mohammed. First of all, thank you both for the presentation and for going through all these slides with us. Um, my question is regarding slide seven. Um, I know that you mentioned that the data is not all desegregated. Is that the case for um, the information on slide seven? Is there a, a breakdown of, um, of this information? I'm sorry, a breakdown in terms of Race, oh, oh, okay. So breakdown in, in for the sake of our reporting, um, it it is not broken down for uh, OFCCP standards. However, we do have um, a SharePoint site um, uh, within HR that uh, employees can uh, access to where they can see that that information broken down into the different uh, ethnic and minority groups. Is that and, information that you can share with us in the commission office? I'd love to love to see that breakdown yes yes Absolutely. i can forward that link and also um through the presentation i did forget to add on that um for our representative groups our labor relations and oedi are actually working together to uh, conduct equity analysis to make sure that uh there's equity and pay practices when it comes to our representative groups great thank you thank you for this important work and that concludes my questions any other questions uh, yeah, I just too want to, um, it for me in the last five years since I've sat in this chair, um, I, I've seen um, the results of data collection and then beginning uh, to really respond to that data uh, as uh, particularly as it relates to efforts to, to meet our affirmative action goals on a federal level and just the, the standards we've set for ourselves. And so this... Um, this presentation is always a good reminder for us that uh, while we are making strides, there's still a long way to go. And, and uh, the most important thing for us to do, particularly this time of year as we're considering budgets, is to um, get this information so that we make sure we're resourcing the programs that we need to drive this kind of work forward. And I continue to be a strong proponent of the upstream work, working with youth in particular, so that um, that availability number is as high as possible, so that we have uh, as big a pool of applicants to draw from so that we can fill these positions. Uh, Sanders and Cynthia, thank you so much for the presentation and for the work. Absolutely. Executive Director Metric, I, I just think we should all express our appreciation, that's all. I mean, we don't have questions asked, but certainly thank you for continuing the effort. Executive Director Metric, any thank questions? You. I just want to add to that. I appreciate the, the work of uh, Cynthia and Sanders on this. You know, and it's just a federal way of looking at it. You, Commissioners, you've asked know for those breakdown that we have all our other efforts to look at that and look at the barriers and look at uh, ways then to improve that and through all our different assessment and uh, uh, ways I, I know we can continue to make progress in this regard to do that 
So, but I do think having the information and being transparent about it mm -hmm. is really important uh, to do that because without, if you're not being transparent, then you don't know that we're all uh, focused and all pulling in the same direction, but it's the right thing to do. Excellent. Well, that concludes our business meeting agenda for the day. Are there any closing comments at this time or motions relating to committee referrals from commissioners? Commissioner Feldman. I just encourage you on the way out the door, there are three uh, beautiful pieces of art on three stands. I kind of think they should be illuminated from the inside, but they are a sampling of the work that's going to be installed both here and at 66 by the Schmidt Ocean Institute. It's a traveling art exhibit. They have artists in residence on these uh, deep ocean uh, oceanographic vessels that are doing sub uh, ocean floor mapping. And so all the critter that they have in there, this is etching on glass, but they have artists in residence that are depicting creatively some of these animals that you've never seen before, no less just the geomorphological formations. Easy for you to say at this hour. But anyway, there's going to be this and at 66 and just in time for the r Responsible Outdoor Tourism Summit. It's again getting a little late, but just wanted to make sure it's right there. Wonderful. Uh, Commissioner Hasegawa. Um, I just wanted to echo some of the earlier comments made by Commissioner Fellman about enthusiasm for um, this coming Outdoor Recreation Summit. It'll be taking place Thursday all day at Bell Harbor. And I really want to also acknowledge the contributions um, of my special advisor or strategic advisor, Erica Chung, who has gone to great lengths to making sure that we are um, ensuring a diversity of voices as panelists and participants. Um, we know that ecotourism has not always felt like a safe or accessible um, industry for communities of color um, and people with limited means and so bringing that perspective intentionally into the conversation was really important and I just want to acknowledge all of our hosts for taking that to heart and really living that through with this very first summit. Um, I wanted to congratulate uh, the staff at SeaTac Airport and all of our external relations and um, international relations staff as well in a very successful Tahiti Nui um, event. It was absolutely beautiful and I think for me what meant the most was that it represents the bridge between two lands. Washington State has the third densest population of Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders in America with a very substantive Tahitian community and what this means for them is a nine-hour flight to their home. It also means tremendous economic opportunity uh, for, the, for French Polynesia and so it was a tremendous honor to be joined by the president of French Polynesia as well as members of our thriving community. Um, and finally, I did want to acknowledge and wish everyone a very happy Filipino American History Month. Filipino Americans have been valuable contributors to our society, our economy, our culture. It was recognized um, and made formal by Governor Jay Inslee in 2019 for the month of October because of the relationship with the harvest in Yakima that Filipino farmers have. Um, and so I'll, I look forward to going to Yakima Valley to celebrate with um, some of our contributors and our, and our ag agricultural partners this weekend. Thank you. Commissioner Muhammad. 
Thank you for the time. Um, I have heard from a lot of constituents who are from the Iranian community, Iranian Americans, and so I just want to say that I stand in solidarity with the courageous women and freedom fighters um, in Iran who are peacefully um, demonstrating uh, and fighting for their bodily rights. And um, it is a difficult time to be a woman in this world, and so I just want to express my um, my solidarity for them and to say woman life and freedom uh, go ahead commissioner film I, I would like to just acknowledge the fact that I failed to acknowledge Erica Chung's contribution to the rots expansion and your efforts and leadership to make sure that it occurred and so both our staff, David Yeworth and Erica, were, have been essential to that. And thank you so much for acknowledging the heroics of the Iranian women. It is a tremendous thing. And Native American or Indigenous uh, Day is an also very important day for people I work with. So thank you very much for acknowledging all those things. And I'm good. Hearing no further com. Oh, one more. <laughs> Go Mariners! <laughs> We're up seven to third in the seventh. Not that I'm watching, but <laughs> go Mariners! Well, so that's what I was going to say, but um, <laughs> that's okay. That's all right. I get to adjourn the meeting so we can go enjoy the last few innings. So, hearing no further comments and having no further business, if there is no objection, we are adjourned at three twenty-two. Go Mariners! <laughs> <laughs>